EU's antitrust investigation into Microsoft Teams, thought-provoking quotes about digital transformation, and secrets to effective project management. These are just a few of the topics we'll cover here today in episode number 132 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 132. My name is Eric Kimberling with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited for our episode today. I'm excited as well. We are both from Third Stage Consulting, uh, an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach their third stage of digital transformation success. And we are also your host here today for episode number 132 of Transformation Ground Control. We've got a great episode here. We're going to cover some hot topics in the opening segment. Uh, in particular, we're going to talk about the EU's investigation into some potential antitrust behavior with Microsoft Teams. And uh, I'll be curious to hear more about this. Microsoft cannot seem to get a break from the EU. EU is always going after Microsoft and Google, it seems like. But uh, we'll learn more about that here in the opening segment with Hot Topics. We're also going to uh, talk about how SAP is raising its on-premise support in the spirit of driving more cloud adoption. So we'll get into that topic as well. And we'll also get into some audience questions as well in the opening segment. So uh, be sure to stick around for that. And then later in the show, Kyler and I are going to have a discussion around thought-provoking thought quotes about digital transformation. It's our attempt to really simplify the complexities of digital transformation into one-sentence quotes that hopefully you can remember and take with you. And we'll have some conversation around each of those and bring some of those quotes to life. And again, in the spirit of hopefully simplifying these complex thoughts or complex topics around digital transformation. And then finally, last but not least, we'll have Mitch Otteson and Adam Cheatham on the show, who's going to be on talking about secrets to effective digital transformation project management. So this is a clip that we're going to play you from our one of our recent digital stratosphere events. It was actually one of our uh, remote digital delivery events uh, that we did during the, the heights of COVID. Um, and by the way, we are having our first in-person digital stratosphere conference since COVID um, in October of this year in Denver, Colorado. We'll tell you a little bit more about that later, but go to Stratosphere 2023 if you want to learn, or Stratosphere2023.com if you want to learn more about that event that's coming up in Denver. First week of October, you can join Kyler and I and other thought leaders, both from third stage as well as uh, thought leaders that are not from third stage consulting um, at that event. It's a technology agnostic conference coming up in uh, October. So in the meantime, though, we'll play you this clip with Mitch and Adam from a past digital stratosphere conference. But before we get to our guests and our other topics here today, what are some of these questions you've got for us here today from the question jar, Kyler? Absolutely. Well, we've had a great week of audience questions, really thought-provoking questions. And if you are new here, um, we do actually pull all of our comments off of both Eric's social media channels and Third Stage, and we put them in our question jar. You can actually pop the questions that you have for Eric in wherever you're watching right now as well. Um, we'd love to hear from our audience. That's our mission here is to drive 
conversation within the industry and ask questions to make sure we're effectively supporting enterprise technology initiatives. So with that, let's get into it. Our question jar here. Um, All right. So this one is a specific on kind of your review of Epic software, which we actually get a lot of comments on for our healthcare systems. Um, but this, I, I kind of want to generalize it. Um, can you get a certification in specific systems? And what are your thoughts or recommendations around getting system-specific training? Yeah, I mean, if you're a, it depends if you're a customer or a consultant, but in either case, whether you're a customer and end user of the software or a customer, you can get certified and you probably should get certified in that particular technology if you're, if you're going to be doing that for your career or for your job. Um, if you're a part of an organization that's implementing Epic or any other system for that matter, I would suggest that as part of the core team training that you try to get in on that. I mean, ultimately, a lot of times organizations will train their project team members and some key stakeholders that are going to be using the system. They'll they'll train them early in the project before they even deploy the technology just to get people comfortable with it and familiar with what technology it is they're going to be involved in de deploying. Um, and then certainly the end user training you'd want to take part in that comes you know shortly before go live. If you're a consultant, though, on the flip side, then I would go to your, you know, whatever your consulting firm is, if they're a partner of Epic or a partner of any software vendor, uh, you'd want to see if you can get some sort of certification training. And I would suggest you probably need that to be able to do your job effectively if you're specializing in deploying a certain technology. So there's usually for the bigger systems like Epic software in the healthcare space or um, any of the year, big ERP providers like SAP and Microsoft and Oracle, there's there's a lot of vendor provided training certification courses, as well as uh, third party uh, independent uh, technology training sources too. So it, you've got plenty of options and the bigger the software, the more commonly used the software, the, the easier it is generally to find that sort of training. Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely something that you can uh, look, learn more about on our website too. Um, if you do search any system that you're, you're looking for, that's great kind of educational material um, as well, specifically because it's technology agnostic and and completely unbiased or influenced by vendors in any way. So good question. Right. Um, this is a really interesting question. And too, um, we have a few case studies about food and beverage specifically. But what are your recommendations when you're looking at fresh produce in food and beverage as far as supply chain and distribution systems? Wow, that is a very specific question. Fresh produce <laughs> and what was the other part of the question? when it comes to fresh produce and, food and supply beverage. chain? Just food well, and beverage in general? Yeah, supply chain and, and distribution. I think we can kind of generalize that a little bit too. When you do have an industry that relies specifically on a, a really specific piece of your overall supply chain, what are some considerations you want to take into, um, into just overall uh, fact when you are looking at evaluating dis different systems? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're talking about food in general or, or fresh produce uh, as a micro category within food and beverage, um, I'd say some of the things you want to think about are, first of all, uh, traceability, you know, to be able to tr trace the final product back to the supplier. Um, so if you do have a recall or there's some sort of quality issue or some sort of regulatory problem um, wherever you're selling your products, you can always trace back those problems back to the appropriate supplier. And if there is a recall, you'll know which, you know, where, where the source of the problem is. So having that, that's sort of lot traceability throughout the entire supply chain is really important. 
Um, the other thing that that I think is important for any supply chain, but especially for a food and beverage sort of supply chain, especially if you're talking about uh, fresh produce, where I would presume I'm not an expert in fresh produce, by the way. Um, I've done quite a bit in food and, food and beverage manufacturing in general, but not so much fresh produce. But I would suspect in the world of fresh produce or any sort of food manufacturer that relies on vegetables and farm uh, farm-derived products, you're going to be uh, somewhat subject to, to macro forces that are outside your control, whether it's weather or um, the reliability of a farmer or whatever the case may be. So you want to know that you have the ability to use technology to identify where those risk or failure points are in your supply chain. So in other words, if you have a dependency on one supplier, one farmer, and you've got a lot of risk concentrated in that one provider, that one supplier, you want your technology to be able to sort of flag those sorts of is potential issues or potential bottlenecks or constraints or whatever the case may be. And a lot of the the more modern supply chain management solutions can help you do that. So those are just a couple of things that come to mind as things you'd want to do that are a bit unique to food and beverage. Um, but there's a lot of other considerations for supply chain management in general, but those are a couple that come to mind. Absolutely. And if you do have questions about agriculture or food and beverage, we actually have two case studies on our YouTube channel you can just search in agriculture or food and beverage, and you'll see from two of our different um, client support teams, because we've done a lot in farming and agricultural, specifically on the distribution side too, and then also in food and beverage. Um, it's a main um, niche for third stage. So definitely go in and search that if you have specific questions. Also, just a reminder, if you comment on those videos, I will pull the questions or my team will and um, answer them directly. You can also always email us questions at info at thirdstage-consulting.com. So um, let's do one more here, Eric. Okay, sounds good. It's one I'm hoping that we get to. I might cherry pick it. Oh, no, I got it. Look at that. Look at the draw. Um, so this one is a really good question um, that says, I'm confused. Uh, my system integrator gave me training that looks like just PDFs. How can I ensure that my users are actually utilizing the system? Do I just pass them the PDFs or what do I do for training? Ooh, um, that's a, I would be confused too. Um, <laughs> and I'm confused on how system integrators can, can think that that's adequate training. Uh, what I'd say is yes, you need to sort of push that issue with your system integrator to ensure that you get hands-on access. Um, I would, I would suggest, first of all, I would say that you, you know, whoever this person is, assuming you're part of the project team and maybe you're a little bit more involved in the day-to-day -day of the project, I'd say you should get access first and foremost. I mean, if, if you're not comfortable and you don't have that accessibility to the system, that's a problem. So make sure you're getting access to the system, even if it's a test sandbox or a in-development sort of production environment or a, a, a development environment, I should say. Just something to where you can get your hands on the actual software. Um is going to be a lot more beneficial than than a PDF. So I would say, you know, push your system integrator and or the software vendor directly if you can't get it from the system integrator access to the system, even if it's a generic vanilla version of the software that's not reflective of how you're going to configure it. You, you at least need that base understanding. Um, the other thing too is when you think about user acceptance testing too, that's a great opportunity to train people and to get their hands dirty enroll up their sleeves and get into the system. So that's, it's not necessarily a training activity per se, but user acceptance testing can have a secondary benefit of not only testing the software to make sure it works, but making sure that people know how to use the software the way it, the way it should be. So those are a couple of things that come to mind there. 
Absolutely. Um, definitely something that, again, we have a lot of content on um, that we've done in previous ground control episodes when we talk about the importance of training and user adoption. So anywhere you get your podcast, if you search um, learning management, we have a great um, segment from Lauren Moran, who's actually on our team, who helps with some of our biggest clients when it comes to the need for training and what that looks like. So uh, definitely recommend that as a follow-up, but great question and definitely a, a huge area of opportunity for us in um, the ERP and software industry. So I know we want to get to some really relevant hot topics too, but just a reminder, if you do have questions for Eric, you can either post them on his YouTube um, or any of his social media platforms, as well as third stage with hashtag ask Eric and we will pull them um, for future episodes. You can also post them wherever you're watching or garnering this content today, and we'll, um, we'll pull them here for some relevant questions. So thank you, Eric, for all your insight and excited to get to some of these um, relevant news stories. Yeah, absolutely, and appreciate the audience questions, and uh, it makes this podcast a lot more fun to do and a lot more interesting, I would, I would argue. So thank you for the audience questions there. Um, and we are going to get to some additional hot topics here or some additional uh, trending topics here in just a moment. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how SAP is raising its on-premise support of its product to drive more cloud adoption. And we're also going to talk about how the European Union is launching an antitrust investigation into Microsoft Teams. Um, so we'll, we'll cover that here in just a moment. And then later in the show, stick around because Kyler and I are going to talk about some thought-provoking quotes about digital transformation as a way to try and summarize and simplify a very complex topic, which is digital transformation, how to go through the process, all that stuff. We're going to simplify it down into some digestible quotes. And then later in the show, we'll have Mitch Otteson and Adam Cheatham on the show talking about secrets to effective digital transformation project management. So be sure to stick around for that. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. Could you whisper in my ear the things you want to feel? Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 132. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. Or you can also just go to transformationgroundcontrol.com. And that's an aggregated website where you can find all the different platforms that we're on. And you can watch or listen wherever you, you'd like there. And keep up to date with new episodes at transformationgroundcontrol.com. So we've got some really interesting hot topics, or you've got some interesting hot topics for us, Kyler. Two topics that I know nothing about, so I'm, I'm eager to learn from you and with the audience here. Well, I think you might know quite a bit about one, um, but let's start with the one that you might not know as much about because it was actually announced um, as we were reporting this episode today. Um, so hot off the press breaking news, if you will. So the European Commission, um, the EU, 
launched an antitrust investigation into Microsoft Teams, and it's actually after Slack, another collaboration tool, as we all know, um, made a complaint against these antitrust laws. And so I want to talk about two different areas to kind of get your feedback on that they're looking at through this probe. So the first is that Microsoft doesn't allow users to opt out of access to Teams when purchasing the 365 subscription. So they believe that that's given Teams a distribution advantage over their rivals. And they also are concerned about um, the interoperability with competing communication service. And this is really what I want to dig in with you, Eric, because I know we talk a lot about interoperability. But what does it happen when you have a large corporation such as Microsoft kind of creating an area in which it only will create interoperability with its sister or um overall supporting products like Teams and D365. And maybe you're a business that wants to use something like Slack in this example or another best-of-breed solution, but they're kind of creating barriers around that interoperability within the ability to choose as Enterprise. So I wanted to kind of get your feedback around what you thought about that. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm trying to digest it a bit, but I'd say the First of all, that's Microsoft's MO. I mean, that's their strength in a lot of ways. And that's their business model is to create this interoperable advantage to Microsoft products playing nice together. Um, They had a similar opportunity and legal issue, I think about 20 years ago when the EU, I think, initiated the whole thing back then too. The EU sued Microsoft for... uh, embedding Internet Explorer, which at the time was a pretty popular web browser that, that Microsoft uh, promoted. Um, it was baked into the the Microsoft operating system. New laptops or new computers that had Microsoft Windows on it would would be would come pre-installed with Internet Explorer. So the whole premise there, the legal premise was they had a unfair advantage and there was an antitrust issue there because it wasn't allowing other competitors. And I think net um, what's the name of that? browser, I think it's called Netscape. Yeah, Netscape was the product like in the late 90s that was at a disadvantage. It was really popular, but it was at a disadvantage once Internet Explorer came out because now Microsoft packaged Internet Explorer with all of its products. So anyway, long story short, the reason I bring this up is that's what Microsoft does. That's their business model. And they've gotten into past legal issues because of it. And now just to kind of look at that past case study, Internet Explorer. I don't. I don't even know if you can get Internet Explorer. It's certainly not nearly as popular, widespread as it used to be. If it, if it is still around, I, I don't even. I don't even know if it is. Um, but, and I think a lot of that was because they lost the antitrust argument, or, or you know, they were on the losing end of that antitrust argument. So I don't know if the same will be true here. Although what what I find interesting about this one, though, that might be a little bit different, is that salesforce owns slack so salesforce bought slack and i think they're trying to do the same thing with slack i think they're trying to bake slack into their salesforce product and make it sort of an interoperable interoperable sort of a add-on or solution that goes with salesforce so it's a little bit ironic that or i don't don't want to say it's hypocritical i don't know all the details behind it but it seems a little ironic that salesforce and slack are now coming to microsoft and saying that um or, or you know raising a complaint, basically, that Microsoft's doing the same thing. They're just doing it more effectively, it sounds like. So I don't know. I I'm um, I kind of see my I see both sides of this, to be honest. I'd be curious to see where it goes. What, what are your thoughts? 
Oh yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's definitely one of those things that I think the nugget I pull out of this as insights is when you are looking at evaluating a new system, you really need to understand the subsequential, um, subsequential, subsequential. <laughs> it's funny. I knew what you meant though. I know that's not a word, but I, yeah. yeah I right. Know. Right. Um, the, uh, the overall different packaging that comes with kind of those sister solutions and understanding that for your interoperability overall strategy. So when you look at things like integration, what's that gonna look like with your other systems and really mapping that out and specifically utilizing a technology agnostic expert to do that. Because so many times, like in this situation, you might have you know someone saying, I guess that will work, but really teams will work better or such and such will work better because it's all, it's built on the same platform as Microsoft or anything like that. Um, so. I think that's really the biggest takeaway I have from this is that you really do need to understand that as as we go into evolving around more of an interoperability, breast of breeds type of solution. How do those interact with each other before implementation? So you're not in an area in which you're not be able to utilize the system to its full potential. Yeah, and I guess the the other irony in all this is that Microsoft is generally known for creating open architecture, so they have. Like with Microsoft Dynamics, for example, their ERP solution, it's, it's, yeah, they've got like, it's easier to integrate SharePoint and, um, other Microsoft products into their Microsoft Dynamic dynamic solution, which you would expect. I mean, I wouldn't expect anything else. Um, but yet they still have this open architecture where you can integrate other solutions. So it's kind of ironic that Microsoft generally has like open architectures and they're about, you know, they've, they've sort of promoted op open architectures over the years. But yet on the flip side, they're getting attacked for these antitrust, potential antitrust violations. I mean, if I'm Microsoft, I, I, why wouldn't you bake Microsoft Teams into Microsoft Office and make it all fully integrated, make it easier to use? I mean, that's that's your product. Your job is to sort of integrate it all. So I guess I'm a little skeptical of, of uh, the government getting involved, but you could ask me anything about the government getting involved in anything. I'm probably going to give you the same answer just based on personal <laughs> opinion, but <laughs> so I'm a little biased in that way. Yeah. And the EU is known for that, really, um, in you know getting involved in those those bigger um, overall antitrust conversations. And sometimes good things come out of it, and sometimes they don't. Depends on who you ask. But they're really known for you know getting involved and in trying to regulate that, which is why there's so much more regulation around things like social media and AI in Europe as opposed to um, here and in, in more of a kind of capitalistic, you could argue, society in the States. So really just depends on kind of the culture and what makes sense, right? So yeah, curious to see how that unfolds, though. Oh, I know, I know. We'll keep you updated for sure. Um, but this, uh, this overall topic when it comes to on-prem support, I know we'll talk a little bit about like end of life when we talk about... Um, our overall insights into digital transformation, kind of buzz phrases or uh, or um, insight. Quotes. But for for the second year in a row, SAP is actually raising on-premise support costs to push users into their cloud environment. Um, so this actually, it was announced last Thursday that it will raise the cost of support for users using their on-premise software for a second year in a row just days after announcing plans to withhold not only um, not only increased costs, but withhold future innovations to this product for on-premise customers. Um, so this is, you know, obviously a big, big move. Um, and just to give you some numbers, 
Um, it had about of a decade long price freeze, as you know, and then SAP increased the cost of SAP standard support and SAP enterprise support um, for large ent enterprises um, as of January 1st, 2023. So it it raised about 3% um, with a cap in 2024 of 5%. So that's really what it's looking at. And if you think about SAP customers that are very large, complex, um, global organizations, a lot of times that can be a pretty substantial, uh, substantial, I should say, cost. Um, so this has caused some overall um, disruption in conversation around SAP which we see a lot of SAP S4 HANA implementation failures, very high profile failures at this point. So you have a lot of unhappy users, which had you know been kind of loyal customers of the on-prem solution that now are having to pay more, but they feel as though moving to SAP S4 HANA or, or more SaaS-based solutions is a big risk because of these high profile failures. So I thought I might um, kind of get your, you know, your overall feedback to what that looks like or how you should consider this if you are an, an SAP um, company or own SAP software. Well, it's an interesting sales tactic. I mean, anytime a software vendor or any any uh, business stiff arms or uh, what's the right word I'm looking for, uh, tries to force customers into a buying decision, that mm -hmm. is an interesting tactic that I don't see how that works long term. It certainly doesn't build trust or confidence in your brand and it certainly doesn't help the relationship. And, and, uh, and I think SAP, I think they're making a mistake. I think, I think all these vendors are, are making mistakes with their, their forced migrations. I think the smart, uh, the smarter software vendors are the ones that are offering it, trying to nudge and provide incentives to customers to move to SaaS or cloud solutions, but not fully sort of forcing them. And now what you're seeing is now, you know, SAP already had their mandate that, they're going to stop on-prem support at some point in the near future, but now they're taking another step to say, okay, not only that, but now we're going to raise prices to give you another uh, sort of financial uh, penalty for being on-prem. It's their prerogative to do that. They have a right to do it, but it just seems like a, a flawed long-term strategy. And one thing that we talk about internally at third stage, just as a side note, is just how low the level of trust is in the in this market right now. I, you know, when I started my career, I've seen it. I've seen it hold pretty steady at a pretty dis an abysmal um, level of trust with between software vendors and customers, but it is just tanked. I mean, I think in the last two or three years, just customers don't like it. They, you, you know, we get sort of the unfiltered truth of what customers really think about all this, just because we're agnostic, we don't represent SAP or Microsoft or anyone else for that matter. So you, you tend to hear sort of the, the truth of what they, they think. And it, it's not, this message is not landing well. I don't know of any, I can't name a client of ours that said, yeah, that's, that's a good move on their part to really force us, really give us that extra nudge to the cloud. They're all irritated, even if they know that they need to move to the cloud and they were going to do it anyway, they're still pissed off that the software vendors are sort of forcing them into it. So um, I think it's an extremely flawed, short-sighted strategy on their part. But, you know, I try to empathize and look at human behavior and look at how much investors and uh, shareholders love the recurring revenue model of cloud and SaaS solutions. And they're, you know, I guess the humans that are making these decisions are heavily incentivized by outside investors to uh, make those sorts of decisions and do whatever it takes to, to get that recurring revenue. So I don't know, I kind of get it, but I, mostly I don't get it. You kind of do, but pretty much not. Um, yeah, I pretty absolutely. much don't get it. At uh, all. <laughs> 
and would love to hear kind of your feedback. I know this is a really polarizing conversation. So in the comments, um, we always want to hear from our audience around something that you might experience when it comes to our relevant hot topics. Um, I also recommend if you are in the situation, we did a recent ground control ep episode around the SAP failure ep epidemic um, that's happening. So if you go and search SAP anywhere that you get your podcasts or on um, transformationgroundcontrol.com, that specific content gives you a lot of tactical approaches on how you go through this. You're also definitely um, uh, welcome to reach out to us, um, either Eric or myself directly um, at firstname.lastname at thirdstage-consulting.com to kind of have an informal conversation around SAP. That's a lot of where we we work on, um, specifically if you're in you know a, a failure spot or you just have questions that you want you know a non non-biased opinion about, um, definitely let us know because it is truly um, a really unethical thing to do to force businesses into new solutions, especially if you have a financial um, overall gain for doing that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like we'll talk about in our next segment, uh, which, by the way, is thought-provoking quotes about digital transformation. One of the uh, quotes we're going to pull out to talk about is just some quotes related to how to how you should control your project and how you should be in charge of your project. And I think that's something that organizations, whether you're an SAP customer or a Microsoft customer or any other software vendor customer, and you're in the situation where your vendor's telling you that you've got X number of years or months until you need to be off their system uh, and upgraded to a newer system. I mean, you could take that into advisement, but at the end of the day, you do what you need to do. If, if it means, you know, slowing things down or, going a totally different route and looking for a different software provider, or if it means just riding it out and, and staying on your legacy system for a certain period of time until you figure out what, you know, a, a stable and sustainable path forward is, then, then do that. You know, don't, you can't fall too, too victim to, to some of those pressures that, that we're talking about here. So um, we'll save that. We'll save more of that for the, for the next segment, because we're going to dive into that in a little bit more detail. And again, that next segment is going to be with Kyla and I in the audience talking about thought provoking quotes about digital transformation really as a way to simplify uh, digital transformations and take these really complex thoughts and concepts and, and boil them down to some more manageable one-liners that, that might be a little bit easier to remember. And then later in the show, after this next segment, we're going to have Mitch Otteson and Adam Cheatham on the show to talk about secrets to effective digital transformation project management. So we'll uh, show you a clip of a presentation or a discussion they had recently uh, around that. And uh, we'll have them on the show later uh, after our next segment. So uh, we'll be right back. We're going to have thought-provoking quotes about digital transformation in just a moment. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. When I wake up, well, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling with Third Stage Consulting and your host of Transformation Ground Control. I want to encourage you to read our Guide to Organizational Change Management. It's a free report or a free guide that we published. It's one that I actually wrote that talks about best practices and lessons learned as it relates to change management. So as you know, on this podcast, we cover a lot of stuff related to the human sides of change, organizational change management, including training, communications, org design, all kinds of stuff as it relates to change management. So if you're trying to learn more about change management or you're looking for more direction and ideas on how to get started on your change management strategy and your overall journey, be sure to check out this guide. You can read it by scanning the QR code on the screen in front of you or in the links below for this particular podcast episode, you can find a link to 
uh, take you to the page that'll allow you to register to go ahead and download that and read it for free. So be sure to check it out. It's the Guide to Organizational Change Management, uh, written by yours truly. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think, and hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 132. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and you can find new episodes of this podcast every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, where we stream every Wednesday. And you can also find the audio-only versions on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Google Pandora, whatever. I can't even I can't even name them all because they're on so many different platforms, but whatever. Wherever you listen to audio-only podcasts, you could probably find us there. Just search for Transformation Ground Control, or you can go to transformationgroundcontrol.com to see uh, aggregated all the different ways you can watch the show or listen to the show. So uh, I'm excited for our next topic. We're going to talk about thought-provoking quotes about digital transformation. And the whole idea here is to try and simplify some digital transformation concepts that on the surface are very complex and difficult, but we want to simplify it into digestible quotes, something you could put up on a meme or, or post to uh, Twitter or X or whatever it's called now, or threads, whatever your social media uh, platform of choice is. Um, so that's, that's the whole idea here is let's simplify the concepts behind digital transformation into some manageable quotes, and then let's unpack those quotes and talk about them. So uh, all that being said, let's jump into the conversation. Thought provoking quotes about digital transformation. And what we thought we'd do today is really um, simplify digital transformation in some ways. And really kind of, if we could, if we can narrow down sort of keys to success and just a real simple quotes or memorable quotes, um, that's part of what we want to do. But the other part of what we want to do is get a reaction. You know, do you agree to, with this? Let's unpack some of these thoughts and some of these quotes. If you disagree, we'd love to hear counterpoints to it. So we're going to go through a series of quotes that we've pulled from, um, like I said, from YouTube videos and blogs that we've published in recent years and uh, really hone in and unpack those a bit and bring them to life a little bit. So the idea here is to simplify and to, and to create some discussion here. So I'm really, really excited for, for the discussion here today. So what do you think, Kyler? Should we just jump in and just start throwing quotes up and, and, and get into it? Yeah, let's do this. Absolutely. Why, why mess around? We're not here yeah. to mess around today. We are here. No to, fluff. Yeah, no fluff. Let's just get straight to it. <laughs> why mess around? We could just jump into it. So here's a quote I'd love to get your reaction from first, Kyler, and then mm-hmm. we'll turn to the audience, see what the audience thinks. But in in order to get what you want to, wow, in order to learn how to talk, I uh, do not start. listen to how I'm talking right strong now. Strong start. <laughs> uh, yes, real strong start here. In order to get to what you want to be in the future, you have to understand where you're starting from. What's your sort of knee-jerk reaction to that quote, Kyler? Yeah, it seems like such a, a simple statement that that seems to be obvious, but so many times this is overlooked when we come to projects because out of the best intentions, many project leaders are so excited about that future state that they fail to kind of uh, um, assess effectively their current state. Um, so I think this is one of those where you see those proverbs where it seems so simple and straightforward, but it's often missed within projects. And until you know that current state and really dig into that assessment, not only on what are your processes, but what is the overall perception of your culture for new technologies too. Um, I know you know this, Eric, but I, I can't tell you how many times we've done something like an organizational assessment of that current state and executives are shocked to know that there's an either a perception or a broken process that they didn't even have awareness around 
you really have to have that full foundational um, awareness around your project in order to be successful. That's, you know, just obviously my thoughts on that. What, what about you? What are, what are your thoughts on this? I know you've seen it time and time again. Yeah, it's it's same as what you said, you know, that dynamic of we're so excited about the future that we want to focus on future state. And and what complicates things even further is when you have software vendors or system integrators exactly. who are swearing by the future state that it is enabled by their technology. So the last thing a lot of a lot of software vendors and system integrators and implementers want to do is focus on what the way you do things today. Mm-hmm. Because chances are fairly high that there's a conflict between the way you do things today and the way you do things in the future. So the easy answer or the path of least resistance in the short term, at least, is to say, let's not worry about the current state. Let's mm-hmm. let's just focus on that future state. So you you do have to understand that. Plus, plus every organization has strengths, too. I think a lot of us forget that. Yes, we're going through transformation. Yes, we're trying to improve our business. But we also have things that we do really well. It may be painful. It may be inefficient. Um it, it could be even better, but there are things that every organization does that they do well, and you want to preserve that, and you don't want to lose that in, in the name of "quote unquote" best practices. Um, so I, I think that um, so that, I think that's the main reason is you you need to understand where you're at, and, and also you also have to look at the magnitude of change. If you don't understand mm-hmm. how big of a change that this transformation is going to be, then you have no idea how long the project's going to take. You have no idea what your budget is. You have no idea what the resource commitments are. And anything you put behind that is an absolute guess. And that's what a lot of organizations do. They guess based on a proposal they get from a software vendor, whatever the mm-hmm. case may be. So um, anyway, that, that's a few things that, that come to mind there. Yeah. Here's- and I'll just add um, to while we hear from the audience here, the importance of kind of having the infrastructure around the assessment. A lot of times you don't know what you don't know. And so we come in a lot of times as third stage and help kind of provide that infrastructure of how do you actually assess and get good data around your current state as opposed to bias data or what, you know, executives think they want to hear, all of those different things. Um, So really investing in kind of that packaging is so important so that you actually get clean, qualitative and quantitative feedback around your current state. Yeah, absolutely. And that interesting comments here from the audience, uh, one comment here on uh, LinkedIn is know your bloodline. I, I think that's very relevant, very, Absolutely. Uh, very relevant to, to that quote in particular. Be in the present. That's another mm-hmm. uh, quote, great quote. Um, my wife says that all the time. She tells me, she one of my weaknesses is I do not live in the present very yeah. well. And she always reminds me, you need to live in the present. And I think that's true for organizations too. If you don't understand mm-hmm. where you are and just sort of enjoy where you're at and appreciate where you are, knowing that you want to improve, yes. But if, if you don't understand that and appreciate it, then it can be uh, very, very difficult. Um, another comment from Cindy on LinkedIn, identifying the gaps in the process ahead of time is always crucial. Mm-hmm. Great points. And again, that those gaps are really important. You have to understand what, what gap are you trying to fill? How big of a gap is it? And what is it you're going to do to, to try, to try and over, overcome that? Mm-hmm. Um, another comment, a lot of great comments here. Thank you yeah. for everyone for the early engagement. I, I myself have trouble waking up in the morning. It's the morning <laughs> in the U S so it's, it's great to see the wheels turning better than mine are, uh, from the audience here today. <laughs> Uh, this is from Eric on YouTube. Eric says, would you agree for companies still on old school companies not to look too far yes. in the future, but to take smaller steps first? Uh, Eric is joining from the Netherlands. Thank you for being here today. Um, I would say yes. If, if, mm-hmm. you, if you're an old school organization or if you have really old technologies and or if you're a risk adverse organization and you struggle with change as an organization, that's okay. I think a lot of us tend to you know, have judgment like, oh, that's a bad thing. You need to, 
you know, there's all this talk in the industry about how you need to future proof yourself. If you don't do the digital transformation now and use AI or whatever, you're just going to die as an organization. There's all this fear in the market that if you don't do it now and make these big, massive changes right now, you're, you're just not going to survive. And I think that's complete BS. And I think Mm -hmm. you have to look past that and say, well, look, we as an organization struggle with change. So let's embrace that and let's try and get better at change, but we're not going to change that inability to, or that struggle we have with change. We're not going to change that overnight. So let's deal with the cards we've got and, Mm -hmm. and, and move forward accordingly. So I think it's a really, really good question there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, a lot of interesting comments where people are joining from today. Um, James from Hereford, UK, uh, just as a few examples here. Uh, Karan from Miami, Florida. Ryan from Denver, Colorado. Jawad from Dubai. Sam from Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, Marjolaine from Montreal, Canada. Mel from Springfield, Missouri. I spent a lot of time in Springfield, Missouri, actually, back early in my career. Uh, hmm. Springfield City Utilities. Uh, that was a client of mine a long, oh. long time ago. It was actually the first project I ever managed, like I was the lead consultant on. Wow. Springfield City Utility, Springfield, Missouri. It's a, it's a really cool little town. Um, Germany, India, um, Riyadh. So a lot of Riyadh, I'm sorry, uh, Germany, a lot of people from all over the world. So thank you for being here today. Sam Graham, of course, uh, from Spain is here. And speaking of Sam Graham from Spain, he always has great questions. Um, Sam's question here isn't taking one step at a time, getting close to Agile. And mm. Sam, I think, has watched enough of our stuff to know yeah. what my triggers are. Like, he, yep. he tries to trigger me <laughs> in these live events so, that, like, I can't hide it. Or, you know, there's no yep. editing this out of this video. fish hook there. Yep. yep. Absolutely. Yep. He, <laughs> I fell right into the trap here, uh, the Sam Graham trap. Uh, but it is, I guess you could say that's somewhat agile, I guess, to take one step at a time. But I'd say I, I don't really view it as an agile approach necessarily. I think it's more of an incremental approach. Mm-hmm. which you could use Agile to enable that incremental approach. Um, but I think uh, Agile, in my opinion, is more of sort of an, a general mindset and a general philosophy around how you go through the transformation. Whereas what I'm advocating here, at least for that last question about um, whether you should take smaller changes or smaller steps in the journey, mm-hmm. if you're risk adverse or if you have really old technologies, I think um, that's slightly different, but very, very much over, uh, very much related uh, in that way. Um Yeah, for sure. And agile is one of those words that's so loaded, right? It's often misunderstood and it means a lot of different things. So when we talk about incremental approaches from a strategic standpoint, there's a difference between agile and intentional, right? Understanding your current assessment and being able to pivot from that in a strategic way built around data as opposed to a full-on agile approach, especially if you are an organization that is on maybe an older um, technology, which is not a bad thing because it understands who you are. And although software vendors might push you towards maybe cloud-based solutions or emerging technologies, because that makes more money for them, you have to understand what your identity is and what your competitive advantage is to bring you know, what your services and products are to your customers. Um, so I think agile is a very triggering word because it means so many different things, just like digital transformation. Yeah, very true. It's a very overused, vague, ambiguous term. And mm-hmm. in, uh, in moderation, I think Agile can be a good thing. But uh, I think too many organizations use it as a cop-out for like, hey, we don't need to document or we don't need to define exactly. requirements up front because we're doing Agile. Let's just go start building stuff. Mm-hmm. So. We're here chatting about some thought-provoking quotes as it relates to digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover. But first, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 132. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, and audio podcast platforms throughout the world. We're here, uh, Kyler and I are here chatting about some thought-provoking quotes as it relates to digital transformation. Let's jump back into the conversation. Um, here's another, speaking of trigger, I want to pull up a quote that I think if I were to pick one of the quotes we're going to go through today, the one that I think might be the biggest trigger or at least a candidate for biggest trigger of the audience here today. And this is something that I've published recently in a couple of different YouTube videos. Um, very controversial. I get strong opinions on both sides of the spectrum here. It's a lot like politics. It's sort of like putting out a, a political preference. You're going to get a reaction no matter you know whether, whether people agree or not. I feel like this is one of those things. And that is monolithic ERP software is dying a slow death. And um, one of the things I've been sort of predicting or suggesting in, in videos and blogs recently is that the incumbents as we know them today, I think will be gone uh, in the not too distant future, or maybe not completely gone. But if you remember uh, Bon or Lawson, you know, those are two sort of old systems that sort of dominated the market at one point and now they're dead, especially if you look at Bon. SAP came along and really disrupted Bon in their position in the market back in the 90s. And SAP has been sort of the dominant big ERP system in the market since then. But I think with the uh, the whole premise of this comment or this thread is that with the proliferation of new technologies, um, different types of best of breed mm -hmm. and interoperability and um, business intelligence, workflow management sorts of systems, there's just so many options out there that organizations don't need to necessarily implement mm -hmm. a core ERP system. And they don't need to get into that money pit and into that big risk that is an ERP implementation necessarily. Um, a lot of organizations are saying, well, let's look at what we've got. And speaking of incremental change, they're saying rather than ripping out the entire guts and backbone and infrastructure that we have as an organization, what if we are a little bit more surgical in our, in our approach to replacing mm -hmm. technology? And so that's where interoperability, best of breed, point solutions, all that sort of thing comes into play. And um, anyway, that's, that's my opinion, but I'm curious mm -hmm. to hear what you think, Kyler, and then, of course, what the audience thinks after that. Yeah, definitely. I, well, I'm going to take a full Eric Kimberling approach and say it depends. So I, I rarely get to say that. So, I, you know, I really had to jump on that um, overall <laughs> approach. So I, I think if you have the obviously best of breed solutions and in interoperability when it comes to integrations and the rise of niche systems that help with those integrations, but you have to have the governance in place and the data management in order to make that a good investment, right? If you don't have those practices of making sure that your data is clean and actionable and that your systems are actually creating integration, that architecture, then a core ERP might be a better option for you. 
um, when it comes to being able to standardize that through a system. So I think the organization, like we were kind of talking about earlier, really needs to take a step back and say, do we have the practices, the internal competencies in place to ensure that we can actually leverage this new best of breed environment through interoperability? And if we can't, maybe we need a system to kind of help us through that in creating actionable reports and data. So I think ideally it's moving towards that, but I would kind of flip it on more. It depends on the organization as opposed to the different vendors um, within the overall um, the industry. So I think that's kind of how I think about it um, and understanding that and moving into this, this new kind of environment in which we can create a, a technology stack that is very unique and actionable to our organization, but only if we have the ability to understand how all of that works and create an, a strategy in which we can pull out data that's going to make us be able to make those um, strategic decisions and create that interoperability across departments, not only through the technology, but through the collaboration of the department leadership and the executives. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with the, it depends of course, um, because I always do. That's my answer to just about everything, <laughs> but I think, you know, you're right. It, it depends on the organization. Some organizations, ERP software will absolutely make sense now and mm -hmm. in the future. And, and I don't think to be clear, I don't think ERP is quote unquote dying per se. I don't mm -hmm. think it as a category is going to go away. I don't think SAP is going to go away anytime soon or Microsoft dynamics or Oracle fusion or whatever, but I do think their prominence or relevance in the market is going to diminish over time. And I know, mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of people really don't like me saying that because they've committed their careers to mm -hmm. SAP or Oracle or whatever. Um, but I think it's important to really just look at what are those threats to that um, status quo. And I think that's what, what we're starting to see in, in the marketplace. However, the audience has a uh, mixed, <laughs> mixed opinions here. So um, this is a really good counterpoint here. I, mm -hmm. I apologize. Some of the names I don't see on my, yeah. on my streaming software here, but this is from someone on LinkedIn um, says that Amazon prime video recently shifted to a monolithic architecture from serverless microservice architecture. I did not know that. I'd be curious to know why, or sort of mm -hmm. a little bit more detail if you happen to know and can reveal anything that's not confidential. If you happen to work for Amazon, whoever you are, and I apologize again, I don't know your name, uh, but that's an interesting counterpoint that here's an example of an organization, a really nimble, even though it's a huge company, I, people, I think, generally view Amazon as a fairly nimble tech-based mm -hmm. company. So it's interesting yeah. to see that they're going sort of the opposite direction from serverless microservices to monolithic architecture. So, And that could be a, a function of scale. You know, exactly. sometimes organizations just get so big that you have to have mm -hmm. sort of that big ERP, the monolithic ERP system to, to manage all that data and whatnot. Um, here's a question or sort of a follow-up. Uh, from the question again from Sam, does does best of breed cost more? Um, I'd say long term it won't cost more if it's a better fit for your organization. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to force fit monolithic ERP and monolithic ERP is not the right answer for you, or it's too risky for your organization, or you don't control that project well, then that could easily end up costing you a lot more than best of breed. I think the beauty of best of breed is you can sort of grow into the cost mm -hmm. structure a little bit more just because you can incrementally you know, implement and deploy technologies along the way, which again, back to Sam's earlier point, that's sort of agile-ish, um, which is weird of me to say, because a lot of times I say things that are counter to agile, but um, <laughs> that could that could work for a lot of organizations. Um, let's see what other comments we hear, we have here. Um, 
here's a clarifying question from mm-hmm. uh, Mel. I think she's the one from Springfield, Missouri, if I remember correctly. Uh, Mel on LinkedIn says, "If are you saying that there should be different software for each module, like APAR, inventory mm-hmm. management, et cetera? Or are you saying that people should build their own UI, thus replacing their ERP? Um, I'd say yes, either, either or, or there's mm-hmm. additional options too. Um, you could have different systems that handle certain functions. Um, maybe not, you, you could go as granular as saying, we're going to have a separate AP system, yeah. a separate AR fun- function or system, a separate inventory management. You could get that granular or what we more commonly see is organizations will say, well, we're going to use this software for all of our finance and accounting, which includes AP, AR, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But then we're going to use this other system for supply chain management because that's such a specialized thing. And we need a really deep, robust system that specializes in supply chain management. And then we might have a separate ma- manufacturing ERP or a manufacturing execution system that handles all our shop floor automation. So it, it just depends on sort of like how, how you want to mix and match, but there's a lot mm-hmm. of different ways you could mix and match. But the two ways you describe, Mel, those are two options of how you could uh, go about a best of breed approach or a non-monolithic ERP sort of mm-hmm. approach. And then the second thing you're saying, are you saying that people should build their own UI, thus replacing their ERP? Um, what we more commonly see there is organizations that um, go with the technology like a Palantir or a Snowflake. Mm-hmm. Those are two examples of two systems or, or another one. Uh, if you listen to our uh, podcast, I think it was last week. Um, yes, it was last week. We had um, two people from a company called System 1A uh, based out of South Africa that's another type of technology. It's, it's more on the finance side, but mm-hmm. it's meant to sort of automate and bring together and fill in the gaps of what ERP systems can't do to provide more depth and more visibility than what a core ERP system can typically provide. So these are oftentimes what, what people used to refer to as middleware. It's sort of like that middleware concept. You're, you're taking technology to overlay on top of your back office stuff um, so that you can have better visibility and sort of automate some of those workflows a little bit better. So yeah, great and question. I think all those are great questions. And I think it's nice because they all kind of come back to the original question of understanding that current state, right? Understanding what you want to be when you grow up, as you always say, um, Eric, that's really going to depend on should we take a module based approach? Should we take a customization based approach? What should we do as far as understanding what we what we actually want? But those strategic goals and that foundation free from biases, right, is going to be the the most important piece of understanding what's best for you. Our um, CSO, our chief strategy officer here, Greg Benton, says one of my favorite lines, it's not best of breed, it's best for you. Um, so it's yeah. really understanding what the right system is for your environment. Yeah. Another another good quote. We should have, we should have had that yeah. one up here. It's not best of breed, it's best for you. Same with best practice, by the way. It's not best mm-hmm. practice. It's best for the software vendor when they call mm-hmm. it best practice. Another <laughs> quote that might generate some controversy yeah. here, especially amongst the, the software vendors. Um, I have to do a quick plug, Kyler, uh, since we're, we're kind of right in the middle of the conversation here. Um, if you mm-hmm. like this content and you uh, are interested in joining Kyler and I and other thought leaders that are technology agnostic and learn from some of our thought leadership, we're hosting our next uh, digital stratosphere conference in Denver, October 4th through the 6th. Um, we just announced that. I think last week we announced the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the initial agenda and some, some of the speaker lineup, which is still being added to as we speak. Uh, but check out stratosphere2023.com. And you have early bird pricing until August 15th. 
So um, you save a lot of money if you register before August 15th is what we're trying to say there. So be sure to check that out. Um, look forward to seeing many of you there. So stratosphere2023.com, October, Denver. Denver is very mm -hmm. pretty in general, but October is my personal favorite time of year to be right. in Colorado. So a uh, great time to visit, if, especially if you've never been here. Yeah, and, and shameless plug because Eric won't say it. Our VIP ticket actually gives you full access to him the entire event um, in Specialized Strategy and also his book signing. Um, so the VIP ticket has been very popular as you get to kind of go through the event um, actually with him and get that, that um, insight. So definitely something we're real excited about, and we hope you all do join us and ask these great questions in person because it's a really important conversation to have. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, and you get to sit up close to the band. We have we have a band oh. playing one night uh, on the Thursday night. And there's a '80s cover band playing, and you get better seating if you pay for the VIP. So that's another uh, perk. And you get to see Eric dance. So uh, maybe uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm more likely to crash Hashtag the stage. It depends. Start... Yeah. Right. <laughs> if I have one to two drinks, I tend yeah. to want to go sing. So I might end up actually on the stage, but uh, we'll we'll see. <laughs> the band will kick me out of there probably. Um, <laughs> We're here chatting about some thought-provoking quotes as it relates to digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 132. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, and audio podcast platforms throughout the world. We're here, uh, Kyler and I are here chatting about some thought-provoking quotes as it relates to digital transformation. Let's jump back into the conversation. All right, so um, here's a, I'm going to mm -hmm. jump around a little bit in sort of our, our planned sequence of yeah, quotes here. But here's one that, that I think is important and worth noting. And, and this is another quote um, from one of our recent blogs. But don't let the army of tech consultants tell you how you should run your business. Um, and let me maybe clarify this a little bit. First of all, I'm not suggesting you don't need outside tech consultants. I'm saying maybe, first of all, maybe you don't need an, an entire army of them. Um, that's a whole other conversation of do you need X number of consultants on your project. Are you getting value out of that? That's a whole nother thread or, or discussion point. But what this quote is focused on is, yes, you need outside tech consultants, but at the end of the day, it's your business and you have to do what is right by your business. And too often um, organizations have this sort of a, a learned helplessness that they get from not being experts in technology. So they just defer to this army of consultants. Oftentimes the executive team and the project team is completely outnumbered by the army of tech consultants. And so they feel like, well, I've got 20 people telling me that I need to just 
change the way I do my business and water down my competitive advantage or whatever, because this is the way the software works mm-hmm. and they just end up doing it. And, and you really have to take a more active and a more aggressive role in making some of those key business decisions. And yes, you want to get inputs from your tech consultants, but at the end of the day, it's your business. And there's times where you're just not going to agree or you shouldn't agree with what the tech consultants are suggesting to you. And by the way, there's times where the technology just isn't a good fit for that part of your business. And you've got to figure out what the best path forward is. So um, what are your thoughts on this whole thread, Kyler? Yeah, I think I go back to what we covered, I believe, last week um, or the week before on ground control. Um, when we talk about the Miller Coors $100 million ERT, ERP implementation failure, and we look at why that failed and because their overall implementation was completely outsourced to external consultants um, without any ownership of the project. So I, I love that you took two approaches here of understanding one you should have internalized that strategy. You should have a main overall role in understanding and controlling your project. You're the one that is the business owner. You keep it on track. You understand that everyone has conflicting agendas. And that's a lot of times what we come in and kind of coach our clients around is these vendors, whether it's system integrators, whether it's software vendors, whether it's um, external consultants, are very good at talking you into what you should be doing, quote unquote, right, should be doing for your own project. It's because, you know, they make a lot of money off of that and they have some sort of financial agenda. Unless you internalize those strategic decisions and take an active role in your project, on both you know, the selection side, the phase zero planning, and then also the post-implementation side. And I love when we have different, um, different stakeholders that talk about having the vendors actually take a role in making sure that you achieve the business objectives that you have um, and that you have through the technology. That's so important as well, is how they have a stake in what you want to achieve in the project. So I, I love that side of being able to internalize your project and the importance of doing that. But also the army of tech consultants. So many times we see clients that come to us when they're on, you know, a yellow track or a red track with their project and they're, you know, moving towards a failure and they have no idea what the army of consultants are even doing on their project. Because they just, you know, are submitted with this package with this project and they have 30 different consultants working on their project. They have no idea what is even going on or what these consultants are billing for. So, again, internalizing that responsibility of you really have to know what's going on as far as what consultants are actually working on your project and what they're doing and are they bringing value. So I think this is one of the, again, simple statements that can actually lead to implementation failure if you are not readily involved and understand what's going on within your project. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just to give a quick personal story, when I was uh, when I first started my career, I started at one of the big uh, system integrator, big five consulting firms or big Big four now, but back then it was big five. Um, that shows you how old I am. Um, but but it, it was one of the big five firms. It's my first project coming out of grad school. They had just hired me out of grad school. This is my first project after my trading, and they put me on this big SAP implementation. And the I remember the company had about 40, 40 or 45 consultants full-time on the project. It was a big Fortune 500 company. And they put me on the project without really a clear defined role. They just knew they had to get me staffed. They had to get me fully utilized. So they put me on this project as a new kid out of college. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I thought I was pretty smart then, but whatever. I didn't know what I was doing still. Um, 
but you know, the whole time I was trying to find work. Like I spent the first mm-hmm. few months just like, Hey guys, give me something to do here. Like I'm getting bored or I've only got 10 hours of work, of work a day or 10 hours a week or whatever. Um, but yet what they did is we would all show up at the client, all 40, some of us, we would show up every morning at seven 45 in the morning and we'd all go in together and we, none of us would leave until like seven or eight o'clock at night. So we were all working, you know, 12 plus hour days. And I probably had an hour or two of work a, a day yeah. at the bar. You know, I was really st- struggling to like, give me more work. Like I can get through this stuff in like a fraction of the time I'm here billing. And I felt really bad, but that was just sort of, that's just the way it was. That was my job was to find more work, find more hours, bill more hours. And the expectation was you're going to bill a maximum number of hours. No one ever questioned, by the way, no one ever questioned why I was there. Yeah. Or what was I doing? And someone probably should have, to be honest, someone should yeah. have been questioning that someone, not, not the company I work for, but the client should have been questioning that. Um, but you kind of have to look at that. Not that you want to micromanage every move that your partner makes. You have to trust them to some degree, but you also can say, do we really need 45 people here? Let's look at what they're doing. Maybe we scale that back down to 40 or 35 or whatever. Um, and I imagine for those of you working with big system integrators, there's a lot of downsizing you could probably do, especially mm-hmm. when it comes time for a project to get delayed. Cause a lot of times the initial estimate mm-hmm. is say two years, it's a two year estimate, but it was always going to take three years. Right. And so what they do is they staff up for like a two-year implementation when they realize it's going to be three years, they don't scale back and say, oh, we'll, we'll cut back on our staffing then yeah. to have a slower run, right? They keep that same run rate or they want to keep that same run rate. So um, that's sort of a, a, a couple of different dynamics behind the scenes that you want to be, be aware of there. Yeah. Uh, and it's often good for them, right? If your implementation is going three years as opposed yeah. to, right? Because yeah, they get exactly. that, you know, financial bottom line. Um, to understand that. I think, um, you know, in, in your mentorship, just in in the third stage side, Eric, one of the things that you've taught me is sometimes micromanaging is not a bad thing. And that doesn't come for like our, our, our internal team, but it comes for our external questioning of projects, right? Mm-hmm. So you think of it as like, I want to give trust and autonomy to these experts. But at the same time, this is your project, you're responsible for the budget, you're responsible for the timeline, and you have every right Right. And I, I think if you have questions about your bill of rights, definitely go back and watch Eric's um, live stream that he did on clients rights, because so many times you don't think that you really have the option to question that. But you absolutely do. Um, mm-hmm. You have every right to know what's going on in your project and what every single person is billing on and why. Yeah, especially, you know, to your point, Kyler, if a third party has a conflicting self-interest. In other words, they, they benefit when you are hurt. Um, Mm -hmm. then you've got it. Then the only way to manage that is through managerial controls, oversight governance. I mean, you have to dig into that because you know, that party is going to benefit from you extending the duration from two years to three years. They, they financially benefit and they'll tell you all day long, like, Oh no, we would never do that because a referenceable client and a happy client is more important to us than, revenue. Okay. Yeah. That's maybe sort of true, but no one's going to turn away money if it's right in front of them and they have the opportunity to make more money right now. Um, that's just human behavior. So you've got to, you've got to, um, you've got to go that route. Um, here's an interesting comment that just came in. Um, it's kind of a counterpoint here, uh, from uh, Cameron on, uh, LinkedIn. He says, micromanaging is always a bad thing. Um, I'd be curious to hear why you think that, or if you think there's any exceptions to that. I, I don't agree with you on that at all. I think micromanaging can be a good thing. I think in, in moderation, it can be a good thing. It's more of a, uh, what's that cliche? I always mess it up, Kyla. Quiver in, arrow in my quiver, quiver in my arrow, arrow in my quiver. It's it's an arrow I have in my quiver. It's a tool in my toolbox. How about that? 
that's a tool in my better. toolbox. I, I can have occasionally. No idea what you're talking about. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> you're just as bad at cliches. Yeah, as right. I, yeah, I you're the only person I know that might be worse than me. Yeah, right. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll stick to the easy one: tool in the toolbox. Yeah. I've got a tool in my toolbox. I can use it sometimes. It's like a hammer. I'm not going to use it all the time, but sometimes I will. And I think that's what micromanagement is. I think micromanagement is absolutely not cool. They're not teaching it in mm-hmm. business school. Uh, even when I was in business school, it wasn't a cool thing. It was all about decentralization and flat organizations and trusting people, servant leadership, all that stuff. That's great. But it, there are times in in the case of conflicting self-interest, you do have to micromanage at times. It's sort of that trust but verify mentality too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'd love to hear, uh, Cameron, even though I'm saying I disagree with you. I'd love to hear your kind of counter to that or why you think it's a, a bad thing or sort of what you've seen. I'd love to hear your your uh, follow-up there. Here's a really nice comment um, from LinkedIn. Great voices and natural vibes coming from you guys. Well done. Hashtag it depends. I love it. Yeah, it's going to start absolutely. trending on on the Twitter and, the, and LinkedIn. And, it's uh, my one goal. Threads. Or, it depends. <laughs> right. Or it's not Twitter anymore. It's X, I guess. So I can't keep up with X, Y, Z, yeah, whatever. Elon Musk, is, Elon Musk is all over the place. I don't know what he's doing, <laughs> but he's, he's a genius, I suppose. Yeah. Um, here's another, just more of a fun comment from LinkedIn. Interesting, but still digital transformation is not used to a simplest and fullest form. People make digital transformation more and more complex. I totally agree. I think that's mm-hmm. part of why we wanted to do this topic is like, how do you simplify digital transformation? How do you simplify some of the tenets of transformation down to some really simple concepts that you can remember and, and sort of incorporate into your daily lives. But I think too often we get all hung up and caught up in the technology and mm-hmm. let's deploy AI, let's do agile. Let's uh, I don't know, let's do, let's just deploy all these new technologies that we, there's no way we're going to do successfully when we can't even get basic financials in place or whatever the case may be. So I think it's sometimes okay to be simple and, and like mm-hmm. focus on the fundamentals of the business and the people side of the equation and maybe simplify, especially on the technical side of things. We're here chatting about some thought provoking quotes as it relates to digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high-growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 132. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, and audio podcast platforms throughout the world. We're here, uh, Kyler and I are here chatting about some thought-provoking quotes as it relates to digital transformation. Let's jump back into the conversation. Here's one that I know is a a personal interest to you, Kyler, a, a topic that I know you enjoy talking about. So maybe I'll see what your thoughts are here. This goes back to the previous thread about ERP, monolithic ERP, potentially being dead. This is from Sam on LinkedIn, not Sam Graham from Spain, but a different Sam, Sam Murali, Murali, Murali. Um, 
how low code, no code softwares are merging? Are they a threat to ERP software? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think uh, low code, no code software can be a threat to ERP, quote unquote. Um, but it again, it depends on the environment that you're working in. Um, so we have a we have a series on um, no code, low code software on our YouTube channel. So I definitely encourage you to go over there and watch it and comment. I'd love to hear kind of what um, your thoughts are. And that's the importance of this platform is dialogue. You know, and not everyone agrees to the the point of our our last topic of conversation. And that's the important part is the sharing of those diverse ideas, as opposed to one main thread of how you have to do things. So when it look, when we look at low code, no code software, it can be a great opportunity for things like higher user adoption or being able to get those business technologists that might not be the most technical users on a platform to engage in things like employee collaboration um, or having those, those conversations across departments. Low-code, no-code software is also great for reacting to the marketplace when you need to build an application quickly and um, deploy it in an environment in which is going to maybe service your employees or customers. There's great opportunity there. It's just understanding that low-code, no-code software has some considerations. It cannot do all of the things that an ERP software can do. It's not as... Um, proficient in many things. So in ways it can really streamline things like employee collaboration, as I mentioned, or different activities that can be modular based things like in marketing design or generative AI, um, those different pieces. But when it comes to how you use it, again, you need to really have that governance of where does this make sense in our business environment? And where do we need something that's a bit more sophisticated? And how do those integrate and talk to each other within that technology stack? So again, that project, or I should say IT governance is really critical to understanding all the different systems. The last thing I'll say on low-code, no-code software is a lot of times we look at things like cybersecurity. And we see cybersecurity breaches from the best intentioned employees that are just trying to utilize technology that, um, you know, they might not understand is creating a gap within the security. So having a very sophisticated cybersecurity strategy that really audits all of your systems and how they interact with each other is absolutely critical when looking at these bigger user, more diverse local platforms. Um, but I'd love to hear from the audience because this is really something that we're still in case study mode, right? We're still studying. We're still collecting data around how does no code or low code software integrate with enterprise operations and technology. So the importance of putting those comments in there is we actually are able to take that as um, qualitative, um, actually case studies and put them into our blogs and our thought leaderships to help ensure that these types of new emerging technologies are activated in a way that is safe and sophisticated um, for our, our client community. So uh, definitely a good question. Of course, would love to hear your thoughts too, Eric, on what that looks like. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, low code, no code is sort of a response to a problem in the industry historically, which mm -hmm. is customization, you know, too, too often uh, companies were getting into trouble because they were customizing software too much. They were forcing software to do things it was never meant to do, and then they were failing as a result. So low code, no code is sort of a response to that and giving um, organizations better tools and options to be able to change mm -hmm. the software without changing the software, if that makes sense. So giving them more tools to 
really do more advanced configuration is really what it is. It's, it's your, you're allowing configuration without having to customize the code itself. Um, and that sort of minimizes the idea is that you minimize the, the risk of, of customization by doing that. I think the other thing I'll mention is that, you know, low code, no code applications are becoming a standalone category of their own, but mm -hmm. big software vendors are also building in low code, no code options and tools into their core offering too. So I think it's something that's going to sort of permeate into technology in general and, it probably won't be a standalone category for long. I think eventually it's just going to mm -hmm. be sort of the way it is uh, in the enter enterprise tech space. So I totally agree with that. A um, couple, uh, I'll be curious to hear what the audience thinks here on, on mm -hmm. low code, no code, but just to come back to a couple of follow-up comments. Um, this is from uh, Cameron on LinkedIn says that my, this is back to the micromanagement thread. Um, I asked, you know, why do you think that is? Why do you think micromanagement is always a bad thing? And he says it shows insecurity. Um, that may be true, but I would argue that mm -hmm. if you're a CIO or a project team member, you should be somewhat insecure because exactly. you have a bullseye on you and you, you are under a lot of pressure. So you should act accordingly. And um, if you need to micromanage, then micromanage. If, if, and if it turns out you were wrong and you micromanage and there's nothing to see here, which I don't think will be true for many of you, if any of you, but if that is mm -hmm. true, you can always back off and do less micromanagement. But if you don't micromanage, mm -hmm. the, the consequences are pretty, pretty severe. And there are times where you need to, but he does also follow up and say, uh, now you're now saying to be used as an exception to that. He agrees. So I think, so we're kind of saying the same thing. Don't micromanage all the time. Use it as an exception as a, as a, whenever you need it, but not all the time. Um, back to the thread about um, consultants and not having control of your consultants. This is from Colin on LinkedIn. Colin says, we also see many digital transformations being overloaded. It will fail to realize that small projects are more successful. We focus on sizing using formal standards to manage this. Your thoughts? And I'd say, yes, I'd say in general, mm -hmm. smaller, more incremental projects have just a higher likelihood of success. There's less risk. It doesn't guarantee success, but you are more likely to be successful, which is why so many organizations break their projects into phases. They don't try to do the mm -hmm. big bang approach like they were trying to do 20 or 30 years ago. They're, they are doing more of a big bang approach now, or I'm sorry, more of a phased approach now, more of an incremental mm -hmm. approach than they have in years past. And I think that's a, that can be a really powerful, effective way to do it. Um, let's move on and, and you can keep commenting in the, in the thread. I'll come back to, even if you're bringing up a, yeah. a quote we already covered, but just in the interest of time, we'll, we'll uh, kind of move on to a couple other, um, threads here. This is sort of in the spirit of control and ownership that organizations oftentimes fail to have. And this is also in the spirit of software vendors having too much mm -hmm. influence over the way businesses run their business. And the quote here is, don't let arbitrary software end-of-life policies dictate if and when you upgrade technology. And this is one I feel really strongly about. Again, it's that learned helplessness that organizations often have. And they say, well, SAP is telling me I have to be off ECC by 2027, mm -hmm. so I better go do a big, huge S4 HANA implementation right now because they're telling me I have to. Or, you know, it's not just SAP, by the way. It's also Microsoft. If I'm on Microsoft mm -hmm. Great Plains, I've got till whatever it is, I don't even remember, 25 or 27 to get off Great Plains before um, I need to be on D365. And a lot of the software vendors are doing it. They're, a lot of them are guilty of this, but it's really frustrating to watch as a tech agnostic consultant because it's mm -hmm. super reckless. I mean, I think it's a reckless way to do business. Um, I think it's highly unethical to be telling, mm -hmm. you know, holding a gun to an organization and saying, you need to get off the system because we're not supporting it anymore. And guess what? We've got all your data in the system. We're not going to maintain it anymore. 
you're on your own. You need to do a big upgrade. So you're basically, you know, holding the gun to the head of these organizations and making them walk the plank, you know, into a, in, into a digital transformation, whether they like it or not, or whether they want to or not. So our advice to clients is do what you want. If you need to be on an old mm -hmm. system that's no longer supported, then maybe that's okay. That risk act could actually be lower than going through a big transformation. For many of you, it does make sense. You, you should have been off that technology 10 years ago anyway. You might as well, you know, jump in and, and get it done uh, because you've been putting it off for too long anyway. So it just, again, it depends. Hashtag it depends. And, and I think you as an organization have to be just deliberate in terms of what your strategy is. And, okay, you take it into account if they're not going to support the product anymore, if the, the software vendor is not going to support the product anymore. But that's a risk, uh, just like the risk of going through a digital transformation. So you assess that risk, you weigh the risk, you decide what the best, for, best path forward is for you, and you do it on your timeline. You don't necessarily let the software vendor tell you, you know, what, what's right or wrong for your business. So what are your thoughts, Kyler? Yeah, I just had an idea is we should actually read some of the hate mail sometimes <laughs> we get um, because they, they are funny. I mean, you you look at uh, just the, the different emails and things we get from vendors that are so angry that we talk about there might be a different option when it comes to end of life. And a lot of times it's unfortunate, the clients that come to us to say, we have to move off of this, we have to move off of this because of that pressure that they've had from their vendor communication. Um, and it's it's not true. You, you certainly don't have to move off of that if that's what's right for your business and that's what's working for you. And a lot of times that's why we kind of have to reset. But our most controversial um, content that we put out comes from end of life conversations mm -hmm. because it is so lucrative for clients to upgrade. And I will say when you're looking at going to a new system, doing a full on evaluation of should you go with your incumbent system or is there a different approach is so, so important. So making sure you have that full evaluation phase and putting the time and resources into understanding that as opposed to just saying, oh, yeah, you know, we'll quote unquote upgrade to this new system. It's not an upgrade. It's a full on new implementation that takes that intention and that strategic approach and the resources to put that in. So a lot of times they make you feel like it's just flipping a switch and then you're in the situation where you implemented a whole new software system and you had no idea you were doing that. So that's one of the, the pieces of the industry that I think Eric and I share the mission of really unpacking is what does it mean when you're pressured or pushed into a new system that might not be right for you or might not even be the best choice for your evolving business. So both of us are very passionate about talking about this. And, and I think reading the hate mail would be a, a funny thing to do at one point. It would so. actually it would be just like how on this podcast we've done mean TikTok comments yeah, before right. and uh, we kind of read those and uh, sometimes there's you know nuggets of wisdom in them and sometimes oh, yeah. they're just flat out mean but uh yeah. but one of the uh blogs that you're talking about was written by adam from our team who mm -hmm. wrote a blog about uh the microsoft great plains end of life and this is probably the most controversial blog we've published and i've gotten so much hate mail and escalation to me on this it's fascinating to me but basically what he did is he wrote a blog at the time Microsoft had announced the Great Plains was being decommissioned, I think in 2025, but they've since pushed the date to 2027. I might have the dates wrong, but the point is whatever the date was when we published the blog changed to two years later. And so mm -hmm. we put a little disclaimer, we, we updated the blog and said, just as an update, Microsoft has changed the date to 2027. 
but yet we still got so much hate mail from different Microsoft partners and bars saying, you need mm -hmm. to take that blog down. It's wrong. And we said, no, it's not wrong. We updated the date. Microsoft is the one that made this decision. It's not us. We're not just out there mm -hmm. making stuff up. This is a policy or a, a mandate from Microsoft and we're writing about it. And we got so much email about it. Like, well, still, you need to take that down. We made the update to change it two years later. Still, you need to take that down. And we had legal threats. I mean, they were threatening to sue us and stuff like that. No one's tried suing us yet. Um, mm -hmm. But it's just bizarre to me that, you know, you want to you wanna shoot, the, shoot the messenger rather than shoot the message itself, which is yeah. Microsoft is decommissioning Great Plains, is going away, and you have no choice but to get off that system. If that's mm -hmm. wrong to say, I don't know what's wrong with this industry, and I'm maybe even more jaded than I than I realized I was. Um, yeah, and the funny part about that is we didn't like get that information off the internet. We we had clients call us mm -hmm. and say my so and so had called me about that. Um, but yeah, even one of our Google reviews, I think, says Adam puts the cheat in Cheatham, oh. which my father-in-law hates when people say. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's it's one of those things that that's just where our position in the industry is is looking out for our clients and being able to kind of break through the barriers of having that conversation, which is a really healthy conversation um, to have. And if you disagree with us in the comments, I think that's great, too, you know, in, in just having the dialogue around what's right for the business. Yeah. Yeah. And software vendors generally don't like that they can't control us. And that's why we started the company was to be tech agnostic, to be the exactly. client's advocate, not the software vendors advocates. Um, and software vendors don't always like that. Uh, but here's a comment. Sam hits the nail on the head here um, mm -hmm. with this comment. Uh, Sam on LinkedIn says, did vendors learn from Y2K that clients can be frightened into doing something? And that is absolutely it. It's This is Y2K version 2.0. Um, mm -hmm. And if you don't, if those of you that don't remember, maybe you're not old enough to remember Y2K. Um, in 1999, everyone was freaking out that when the year 2000 happened, all the systems were going to crash. All the legacy systems were going to crash because they only had the two-digit year. You know, so when it, mm -hmm. when it from, went from 99 to 00, all the systems were going to crash and the world was going to end, basically. That was sort of the, the fear, and I'm exaggerating and, and simplifying the, the um, sociological uh, reaction to Y2K. But in the midst of all that, organizations were on this mad dash to replace all their systems by Y2K because mm -hmm. they, were, they were genuinely worried about that stuff. And there might have been some truth to it, but then Y2K happened. And what's interesting is I can't cite or remember a single blip at all. And you'd think like someone somewhere must have failed. Their system must have just completely crashed because they didn't upgrade in time or whatever. But guess what? Nothing happened. So it makes you mm -hmm. wonder, like, was that all just made up by the tech industry, this whole fear of Y2K? And the same thing's happening now, and they're all doing it in parallel. They're all the software vendors mm -hmm. saying on-premise is dead. We're, we're killing it. You've got X number of years to get off that. You need to move to our cloud solution now. And, um, you know, software vendors, again, back to self-interest. Software vendors make more money on cloud and SaaS solutions than they do on-prem. Um, it's more scalable for them. Investors love it. They get better multiples on their valuations if they have SaaS and cloud recurring revenue. Um, so again, it could be the cloud is right for you. SaaS is right for you. An upgrade mm -hmm. is right for you. But you also have to just take what the vendors are saying with a grain of salt because it, there is self-interest on their side too. So um, that's uh, a great point that Sam has there about Y2K. Um, let's hit one more before we wrap up and it's going to be hard to pick one here, but, um, I know. There's, there's a lot we didn't get to. We, we might have to do a part two of this because there's, um, so many we didn't get to. Um, I'm going to cover this one just as more of a sort of a, not a closing thought, but it's, it's more of, if you're in the midst of a digital transformation, here's a, here's a quote that might help you. 
Mm -hmm. uh, if your digital transformation is project is in trouble, it's okay to pause while you fix what needs to be fixed. Um, too often organizations get into trouble, project goes off the rails, project gets sideways for whatever reason, and they just keep going. You know, they, they keep at the current run rate. They don't change their strategy. They don't pivot. Software vendor or system integrator reassures them everything's fine. We'll get it back on track. Don't worry about it. But at the end of the day, you're the one that has to live with whatever the consequences are. And so um, we, we've had one client in particular, one of our bigger clients, who I thought did a really mm -hmm. good job of doing this. They, they, um, we've had a couple that have totally paused their projects. Actually, just recently, we've had a couple clients who have completely paused their SAP S4 HANA implementations um, because they just aren't going well. The software mm -hmm. is not mature. They, they didn't realize the, the gaps and deficiencies in the software until they got into it. And so they paused it to figure out what the path forward is. But we've had another client who didn't cancel or pause the project necessarily, but they totally throttled back with their system integrator. They, they actually, back to the first point, we the first quote we were talking about, about having control of your consultants, they had control of their consultants. They said, okay, mm -hmm. we're, we're going to slow down this, this run rate. We're going to slow down our, um, we're going to deliberately extend our duration because the, the change was happening too fast and they weren't adapting well to it. So they throttled back and scaled back like in half their, their uh, consultants in their system integrator system integrator did not like that at all. And they thought, you know, it was the worst decision ever, but it was absolutely the right decision for the business. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, it's just important. It's maybe a broader point here is it's your project and keep control of the project. Like you're responsible for, for managing the project, not your system integrator, not the software vendor, that sort of thing. So what are your thoughts, Kyler? Yeah, and I think when when we talk about the most expensive part of a digital transformation, which is all often the um, actual fixing of a failed implementation, because we shared a new stat um, a few weeks back here on Ground Control that 84% of digital transformations fail, which is humongous. So when you think about fixing a failure and undoing things that have already been done, that's extremely expensive. Not to mention, we just talked about fear, right? We talked about and we, some great comments here um, about the power of fear. It's if your fear of actual implementation and you have to overcome that fatigue or failure within your overall perception in your community or organization, that's huge to have to go and climb that mountain. So if you stop and you show the intention behind, all right, so we, we might not be, we might be in the yellow and we need to take a step back and look at where are all of our budgets are being allocated, what's going on, take a, a project health assessment. And a lot of times that's what we're called in, in implementations that might be veering off the tracks to say, hey, you know, can you assess what's going on here? And because that CIO or that project leader had this security, right? We talked a little bit about insecurities around micromanagement, had that ability to stop and be mindful about where is the project going? I need this independent and agnostic assessment to see wh what is the health of my project? What is the overall assessment of my project? Um, and then being able to say, all right, we need to stop and kind of reevaluate is going to save you so much not only money, time, resources, but also overall fatigue of your implementation staff or your overall culture of believing that you have their best interest in mind. Mm. So many layers to why that's so important. Yeah, no, great, great point. Um, yeah, that's absolutely true. I think it's uh, just having that control and, and uh, not viewing it as a negative thing. If you, um, if you, 
are met with some resistance from your outside software vendor or technical implementer VAR, you just acknowledge or or prepare yourself. You are going to get a negative response Mm -hmm. to that. And that has nothing to do with whether or not it's the right decision for your, for your organization. So um, again, it's sort of like just having the confidence, you know, I think that's a lot of what a lot of organizations are missing is, is uh, confidence. And in fact, I have a, a video that I shot batch that'll probably come out in about three or four weeks. That's uh, it's called my Tony Robbins moment. And so it's my attempt to be Tony Robbins to organizations and say, here's what you need to do Ooh. to get your head straight and to be motivated and to just be confident because so many organizations lack confidence. They just, again, it's a learned helplessness. They don't know what they don't know. They defer way too much to the outside third parties and they lose complete control of the project as a result. So it's my attempt to motivate people to take control and be in charge. And so um, that's uh, something to look forward to as well. Okay. Great discussion around thought provoking quotes related to digital transformation. Thank you, Kyler, and to the audience for the great questions and feedback there. Um, that's something we could definitely do a part two of in the future. So uh, stay tuned for that. I'm sure at some point we will have a, a follow-up session uh, honed in on that topic, but with different quotes. So we're going to shift gears a bit. And after a quick break, we're going to have Mitch Otteson and Adam Cheatham on the show. They're going to be talking about secrets to effective project management within digital transformation. So stick around. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. Just tell me what you've got. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 132. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and audio podcast platforms throughout the world. You can also go to transformationgroundcontrol.com uh, to see and hear all the different options you have to, to see the show. So I want to shift gears a bit here and talk about secrets to effective digital transformation project management. And we want to play you a clip from Mitch and Adam from our team here at Third Stage Consulting. This is a session that they did at one of our online versions of our digital stratosphere conference that we did during the the heights of the pandemic. And by the way, we are reintroducing the in-person version of digital stratosphere, which is this tech agnostic conference that we host once a year. Uh, We're gonna host that in Denver in October of 2023. So the first week of October, you can learn more about uh, the event and get some of the early bird discounts by going to stratosphere2023.com. And the early bird discount is very steep, by the way. So if you register before August 15th, it's actually a, a big break um, than compared to if you wait till after August 15th. So be sure to register before August 15th. You can join Kyler and I and others from third stage and also outside of third stage 
It's a tech agnostic event. We talk about all kinds of best practices and lessons learned and tips for digital transformation in those sessions. And this clip we're about to play you is from one of those past sessions, the online version of this uh, conference. So uh, that all being said, let's uh, roll the clip here with Mitch and Adam talking about secrets to effective digital transformation project management. Uh, we've been working on these types of transformations for quite some time. So um, really appreciate that you guys are here with us today to, to learn uh, this session. We're going to kind of do a Q&A back and forth on planning, managing and leading your implementation. Um, but we're also aware that there is quite a diverse audience. So as you guys have questions, uh, these sessions are the best when you guys ask questions and we get a chance to kind of talk with you on those. So um, that's a uh, feel free to ask along the way. We'll track those. I also want to also, uh, given that uh, we've got uh, Nigeria and, and Ghana and have, have had some other uh, well-rounded well and diverse attendees, we do have uh, four locations across the globe now. Um, here in the U.S., of course, is our headquarters out of Denver, Colorado, um, but our European headquarters is in London, um, and we've got coverage for the whole continent of Europe, as well as um, an office in Brisbane, Australia um, for, for APAC. And we've recently added our third stage Africa out of Cape Town. So we've got a great cross-functional and cross-regional um, coverage for whatever it is your needs might be. And we, we bring a lot of experience to the table from those places. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you, Adam. So I'm Mitch Otteson, Manager of Strategy Consulting here at Third Stage. Um, I'm really excited about all the growth that we've had at Third Stage, all the international offices that we have. I need to check every one of them off on my list and go visit each one of them because uh, I have not been to all those places yet. So that would be a ton of fun to go be, uh, meet my coworkers. But um, really appreciate you all taking the time to, to sit down and talk with us. Like Adam said, it's it's best when this is interactive. Um, love to answer questions. Love to help uh, people as they're as they're considering a transformation or as they're in the middle of one. Kind of navigate what it's like because there's there's a lot of challenges that come up and um, lots of wealth of experience that we can share with you guys. So thank you again for joining us. All right. So um, with a uh, with a quick intro um, on this before we jump into some of the questions that Kyler already has ball uh, ballparked for us, I want to talk a little bit first about planning, managing, and leading an implementation because all three of these things are different, um, and they're all things that we need to consider differently. So we'll talk a little bit about that, and then we'll jump into questions for the, some of those questions, and then we'll kind of bounce back and forth if that works for everybody. Um, you know, one of the, the things that I think is important on the difference between planning and managing and leading an implementation is that uh, you have to get all three of these things right, and they are different. Planning is creating what it is we are going to do, right? What do we intend to do? And then just as much, how do we structure our intentions in a fashion which is adaptable, right? You know, it's, um, it's, it's not but a matter of days or weeks before your implementation plan. Um, has some changes to it. And that's okay. We just want to plan for them and be ready for them and not be so rigid that we can't accommodate changes that should happen. Um, managing is a part of accommodating and bringing in those changes that should happen, while at the same time, um, making sure that the changes that can't happen don't and, and foreseeing things like risk and, and battling issues throughout your implementation. This is getting the right people in the right places at the right time. And just logistically having that structure set and the governance around it. Um, we consider leading an implementation as something much different than just managing. Um, you know, you, you've heard the old adage of you know there you know there are managers and there are leaders, and you know, <laughs> and there's a difference between the two. Uh, that that still applies to your implementation. 
Um, and for us, leading a project means not just coming from the executive sponsor level, but a multitude of levels. You have change agents that are associated with your projects. They're leaders. They're leading the conversation on how well this is going. You have your core team who are leaders in the determination of which processes your future will, will look like and those types of things. So um, as we step through these things and have questions, uh, that's kind of the, those are the lenses that we'll approach these, these responses to. But um, as we jump in, you know, I'll, I'll uh, first uh, give Mitch an opportunity to opine on any of those planning, managing, and leading thoughts before uh, we take some of the, the questions from the audience that Kyler has. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Um, I would say that one of the most important phases of all of this is the, the planning aspect of it. And you can see in the managing and leading um, of a project, if there hasn't been thoughtful consideration put, in into, put into the planning phase, uh, it's going to make your your job way more difficult in the managing and leading of the project down down the road. So, uh, tons of emphasis we put on the planning for the project. You can't plan for everything. Something's going to come up, but um, at least stepping through, you know, if if this happens, then this is how we could respond. Um, thinking those things through is one of the most critical things that you can do as you're preparing for a transformation. Very good. Well, let's jump in, if you don't mind, guys, for um, Thomas's question that I was saving here. So just a consideration, we were just talking about how to select the best, best technology for your organization. So a lot of these are about implementation processes and that type of thing. So I saved some for you because I felt as though it um, fit right nicely into that managing tier. So this is a, a question from Thomas Wright. Within the SAP world of ERPs, there are a lot of different methods of implementation. In my experience, I have used RDS, Rapid Development Solutions, a few times with good business involvement. My question is whether or not this is something you recommend to customers or not. That's a good question. Um, you know, I would say I'm a big fan of having your technology meet you and your team where you are at or where you plan to be at when your transformation is is done. So having business involvement um, up front is is one of the best approaches that you can have. One of the worst things that can happen is that um, your your implementate your implementation team uh, you know goes into a room behind the curtain and they start working on things and all of a sudden they come back and say, "Look, we're done. Here's your new product." So getting that feedback loop in that deployment methodology uh, is really important. And, and I do like the rapid approach because it, you do get quick feedback. And so you can course correct quickly uh, if you find that, hey, something just didn't meet the mark on what we we're looking for. Uh, and putting that in front of people is the way to make sure that everyone can adopt the system and is comfortable with the functionality. Yeah, and I'd, I'd, um, I'd also add to that those types of rapid deployment strategies and, and um, accelerators, if you will, um, in some cases, those are really effective. I really like them in the in the ways that they work. Um, you know, one of the companies that we know very well has a um, a metals accelerator program in their software, and that works really well for uh, for metal manufacturers because it speaks their language. It sets up all of the the units of measure. Are they're already canned? All of those types of things. So you get a leg up on it. Um, I, what I would say that this is kind of a buyer beware type of, of scenario though, in that um, some of those rapid deployment things are sold as accelerators that are really just there to charge an upfront flat fee. 
Um, so as you're evaluating different types of, of um, methodology from different system integrators and different programmers, consider that that rapid deployment method accelerator or, or whatever it is they're calling it um, needs to serve, it needs to be purposefully fit to you. It can't just be a, well, it's the program set up. It's when we install the software. So we're going to charge you enough, another 60 grand up front to do that. Well, the answer is no, that's not how this works. You don't get an extra 60 grand just for showing up to work. Um, you know, the, we, you want to be aware that some of those are buyer's tactics that are made to inflate the price of things. Others really are strong methodologies that are intended to fit either with the software itself or your industry. And you want to make sure that you're vetting them appropriately. We're here playing you a clip of Mitch and Adam from Third Stage talking about secrets to effective digital transformation project management. We've got a lot more to cover. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 132. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're playing you a clip of Mitch and Adam from the Third Stage team talking about secrets to effective project management within digital transformation. Let's jump back into the conversation. I'm going to let you read um, Adam Frank's question from London here, because being the business technologist that I am, this is a bit too technical for, for me. So I'm going to let you read it and address it. Okay. And you're talking about the Oracle ERP cloud here, one from Frank. Yes, I sure am. I do want to first give Eric credit for um, cutting straight to the chase on the rapid deployment stuff. You can't change people or processes rapidly. That's a very good point. Um, you know, and as you start thinking through rapid deployment models and the involvement of the business, again, it needs to be aligned towards something that actually enables your software to be deployed effectively. And you still, it doesn't absolve you from the responsibility of making sure that you're managing your processes uh, throughout the, uh, this and that you're leading your people through this transformation um, deliberately along the way. Because rapid deployment models, accelerators, and all that stuff do not change that processes and people are going to, to, to change uh, as well. And that can't happen quickly. Um, so for uh, Frank's question here, uh, you know, Eric mentioned monolithic ERP versus best of breed strategy. Does Oracle ERP cloud support best of breed? given that they have bought lots of products like G-Log for transportation and Demontra for advanced planning, EPOS, um, et cetera. Um, the answer is sim uh, simply enough is yes. Um, as I understand it, um, Oracle's ERP cloud is built on their fusion architecture platform. 
that is expected to be um, able to integrate with multiple things. It's not uncommon that even, even not just specific to Oracle, that some of those more advanced modules like the Demantra uh, demand planning module in Oracle are designed to be, of course, implemented with their core ERP, but are also frequently available as individual programs to be purchased for just that purpose and, and to integrate with other software systems, whether or not they are um, a legacy system or a, a more modern ERP. So. Um, when you start thinking about best of breed versus uh, versus the monolithic deployment, um, think about it more from a perspective of your particular business needs and how you fit into uh, how a software may resolve those needs for you, as opposed to how do I buy as much Oracle as I can? Did you have any thoughts on that, Mitch? Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I think that um, you know, looking at your, your technology landscape and your environment and making decisions based on, you know, what is going to be the best technology to solve for my business needs is better than just going and buying everything that's in with an entire stack. Um, there is some advantage to doing that, but you know, it's, it's really having that thoughtful consideration of what's the ripple effect of going and making a decision. Um, and, and how does that change my other decisions down the road? All great answers, definitely. And I'm just going to pop up back here since this is just such an interactive session. I just want to make sure that we're getting all of the questions. So um, our friend here from Nigeria is asking, what is the first step in a digital transformation journey? And if I could just recommend going back to watch our emerging markets with our head of Africa, Clifford Barton, from day one. And just a logistic reminder, if you go up to where it says schedule, you can click on those recordings and actually access them from the day of, but I just wanna make sure we address this one because Adam has helped stand up that that market and um, just make sure we got some, um, some feedback on that and keep the questions coming. These are awesome questions, you guys. We will get to all of them. And if we don't within this session, I'll bring some answers back for you. Yeah, the, the first step in the digital transformation journey is to figure out where do you wanna grow, where do you wanna go? What are your growth objectives and how uh, how do you plan to achieve them as a business? Um, you know, with the, the very first step in the digital transformation starts in a non-digital place. Where are we going? What um, what do we want to be when we grow up? I mean, I have a uh, as, as cheesy as that sound, uh, sounds, I have a client that uh, was founded in 1818. And we still talk about what do you want to be when you grow up? It's an important question. So as we start thinking about what are our business objectives? Do we plan to, to grow organically? Do we plan to add new product lines? Do we plan to acquire more people within our industry? All of those growth patterns uh, can influence your digital strategy along the way. And as you start moving towards translating that into a, a, a longer term strategy, the goal is to align technology with your business strategies and objectives in a way that enables them and enhances your competitive advantages in the marketplace as opposed to inhibits them. Um, I always come back to when uh, to organizations that tell me um, IT said we can't do this because the software doesn't work that way. All right. Well, that's a terrible answer. And for those of, uh, of you who are on, on the IT department, I understand that that's the only answer that you can often provide. But from a per business perspective, that's an indicator that maybe you've outgrown your software. Um, Mitch, can you think of any ideas of, of areas where you've seen um, 
the effectiveness of, uh, of defining a business strategy that aligns with digital strategy up early? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think the flip side is something that we've seen quite a bit of is, you know, someone wants to change for the sake of change and they go through and they implement something that, that goes against their core strategy that goes against, you know, their secret sauce, what makes them competitive in the marketplace. And they just really wanted to, um, you know, modernize their landscape more than it was to amplify what it is that they do really well. Um, and so that's why understanding your competitive advantage and building technology to reinforce that or to help to develop that is so critical. Mm -hmm. Well, that's it's, um, you know, Jerry has a question here as a leader, how do you handle an implementation where the selected software will make things easier for some, but more difficult for others? And that um, part of that, uh, part of the answer to that question is you go back to the strategy, you go back mm -hmm. to the objectives, the, the why are we doing this? Um, the when you start thinking about a case for change um, and the understanding that this will be harder for others and easier for some, easier for some and harder for others, that's a part of the process. Um, and, you know, while it's unfortunate that it is true that it will get more difficult to, for others, it's not actually as common that it gets more difficult for some. It usually gets easier for everybody after go live. Um, the, the challenge there is as a leader, you come back to that business case and those business objectives and strategy um, and you start thinking about how does that align with technology and then you start explaining to, you you have a case for explaining to people this is the bigger picture and you start to be able to um chip away at that conversation of perceived wins and losses because that's really what you're talking about when you're when people are afraid of going live it's it's the perception of loss uh, what is my role in this organization now that it gets harder? You're going to make this harder for me and I'm going to have to do all the other things that I'm doing today plus this stuff. Um, that's a difficult conversation to confront, but it needs to be talked about in that, yes, there is more stuff that you can and will be doing in the future, but a lot of the stuff you're doing today is uh, this redundant manual and ineffective and inefficient is going to go away. So there are also wins and losses on both sides of the table. Yeah. And in, in kind of building off of that, I would say that it's not what happens if this situation comes up, it's when it comes up, because this is a conversation we have with every client, with um, some different person for every transformation, this comes up. So, so definitely this is an area where planning and being prepared for how you handle this is really helpful. Um, I had this conversation yesterday. Someone had basically unlimited purchasing access. Um, through their current system. They could write a $5 million check today, no problem. No one has a second set of eyes on it. No one has uh, has to approve it. It just happens. Um, and they did that to try and speed things up. And to and you know there was a problem with, hey, you're putting red tape in front of me and my processes. I don't like this. Um, and so it was acknowledging that, yes, we are putting the red tape there. Um, we're putting process and procedure there and it's, you know, for you. And it's also for, as your team grows, you can't do all the purchasing yourself. So you need to be able to trust the people on your team to be able to do things within the parameters that uh, you and your leadership agree are, are the right thing to do for the business. Um, and so it's, you know, hearing people out, hearing their concerns, their frustrations, um, and then also helping to guide them to water with saying, Hey, here's why we're doing this. Uh, here's the risk in not doing this as we grow and, and focusing on that future state and, and how this is the best thing for the organization, even though there's some short-term pain that, that comes along with it. 
Yep, definitely, definitely agree with that, especially as you start thinking about, well, the purpose here isn't to ruin your life. It's to prevent risk to the business. And and no, we don't want you cutting $5 million checks unless somebody else has a second eye, set of eyes on it. Those are all good, um, you know, good boundaries to have and systems can help enforce those things. Uh, question here from Prem Campbell. Um, about uh, the top causes for IT failures and, and the fact that they haven't changed in 40 plus years. Um, that's true. Those changes are always going to be there. And I like I like here, Prem, that you um, asked the question, do we need a little bit more focus on mindset, psychological and behavioral issues? Um, I think there's a lot to it th to that. You know, it's, there's a um, executives in particular are put in positions to make Big decisions with very little information, and that's generally a, um, an oversimplification of the executive role. But that is one of their responsibilities: is to get the right amount of information and make a decision, and have the right amount of engagement and make a decision. And in some ways, some people's strengths don't go towards technology; they go more towards business process or the people side of things. Um, you know, and helping understand that lean into that from an, an education perspective and pulling them in in a way that creates a partnership where you were building a, a relationship with those executives and sharing with them the things that they should be aware of um, educationally is important uh, but i do think it will always come down to the idea that business is about taking risks um, and executives are adept at doing that and knowing which risks to take and they don't just do that with their business uh, they do that with their levels of involvement in this, that, and the other, because uh, we all only have so much time. And when you think about um, an executive who may delegate um, responsibilities downwards, a lot of times that sponsorship uh, gets delegated downwards as well. Um, and their level of involvement comes up a level. Um, being able to communicate the still the support of that executive um, effectively across the organization, I think, is an important key uh, aspect to the conversation here, given that if the executive just delegates away their responsibilities as a sponsor, um, that can look really bad as far as an interpretation. You know, we talked about perception a moment ago. Uh, from a leadership perspective, it's okay to delegate those responsi responsibilities, but the next step in leading as opposed to just managing isn't just delegating them away. It's then helping everybody understand Who's the leader now? I am still the leader. I have delegated this to this person. They are going to be speaking on my behalf. And I, I am enabling them to lead this and make decisions. That conversation is an important one that in, at the executive level, we don't see that happen very often. So um, I appreciate that question there. We're here playing you a clip of Mitch and Adam from Third Stage talking about secrets to effective digital transformation project management. We've got a lot more to cover. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate experience and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. 
If you're interested in joining a high-growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 132. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're playing you a clip of Mitch and Adam from the Third Stage team talking about secrets to effective project management within digital transformation. Let's jump back into the conversation. Uh, when we go through these projects, there is a fine line between delegation and disengagement. And so when you see someone who has delegated things, it might have the perception of being disengaged. And so it's that, that intentional, that thoughtful communication that says, hey, I am leading this project still, and I'm delegating this to this person there, you know, speaking on my behalf. I thought you said that really well, Adam, where, you know, it is thoughtful, it's intentional, and it is very clearly communicated rather than, I, I don't know, our VP just stopped showing up to these meetings a few months ago, and now I guess this guy's in charge. Um, you know, those questions can really, you know, get in the way of an implementation and a transformation in a way where you, you aren't really sure who's leading it. And, and that's a, a situation you definitely want to avoid. Definitely. And I, and I, I, I'll go back to the ideas, you know, delegating something away can be perceived as disinterest and, and lack of involvement. However, um, simply taking the time to communicate effectively as an executive, I have delegated this because I have thought through who's the right person for this role. And I've given this responsibility to them and they are accountable to me for that. That's a really, really different message um that helps lean into that perception and provide the support that yes as an executive i am involved in this i am interested in it and i am invested in the success of it that's why i put the right person in the right seat that simple message that is more or less actually what's happening most of the time not communicating it is something that i think is important uh to recognize how those types of gaps can can come up yeah, um, and that really empowers that person who has you know, absorb that task to go and do that role to the best of, of their ability, knowing that they have that, you know, that person's that executive's confidence to go and do the job that they were put there to do. It's it's for the that person and the the larger masses as well. It's for both of them. Yep, and I um, and I like this this comment that that Liam's made in here too. I think it fits fairly well um, in this conversation, which is. Uh, um, Everyone has a God mode because it makes their job easy. Uh, maybe they're seen as a fixer and by limiting their access, you're threatening the persona they've created. Um, as leaders through these types of transformations, the way I always see it is we call that a hero culture. Um, and in a, in a lot of organizations, it's uh, all right, we got problems instead of working um, our normal 40 hours a week, which is actually 50. We're going to work 60 this week and I'm just going to put my head down and I'm just going to power through it. And that type of culture is rewarded in a hero culture environment. Um, and that nature of the hero becomes uh, a very visible position. So what we want to do to shift that is to create a, a leadership mentality, which is we value our heroes uh, so much that we don't want to ruin them. Um, so we're going to give them more. Uh, we're going to give them more superpowers by giving them these this greater set of tools. So I, I really like that that thought process there, and and thinking about each individual's role in this as well, because those those failure points that were identified 40 years ago aren't just executives. It's a people culture thing too, 
and that mentality of this is the value that I define for myself and that I bring to this organization, I think is really something that needs to be uh, a mindset that's respected by the leaders in your organization as you're implementing a digital transformation. Yeah, keeping those people around and engaged is so important because they're they're key to your business before your transformation and they're going to be very key for your business after because you know they learned everything about what goes into this brand new system and so they they're very valuable pieces to to your organization. Yeah, agreed. Uh, we have another question here um and I, I uh, you know it's mentioning that it's for Tim, but I'd love us to take a whack at it too. So when a transformation becomes a project, what happens to this ever-changing and never normal changes? Uh, hold on, no, to, uh, the business world is going through. So Mitch, you have some uh, some thoughts on when we, cre when we say we're going to undergo this project, how do you undergo such a long-term project that is going to be in flight while the business norms of the world continue to change how do you take this snapshot of we're going to go kick off today and then two years from now go live on software that isn't based on an old, uh, on a two-year-old model how do you help with that yeah you know I, i'm a big fan of putting together roadmaps and putting together you know here's the best of what we know today and this is informed by our vision of the future. It's informed by our target operating mo model. It's informed by who we want to be when we grow up. And, you know, I think back to, you know, just you know, me as a person, what I wanted to be when I grew up, you're constantly reevaluating those things. Um, ERP consultant was not on the list when I was you know, eight or nine years old. And so as you learn more and you refine, uh, you, you you change what that roadmap looks like and you continue to to alter course, but you keep that roadmap around um, and, it, and it continues to form based on the best information that you have available um, at the time you're making these decisions. So it's impossible to hit a moving target like this, but you, know, you, you do have an idea of what your landscape looks like and what it's going to look like. Um, and if you don't go through that exercise, so that then you are thinking where you will be in the next three, five, 10 years. Um, and it's okay to be wrong. Just continue to refine as you learn more. Yep. Agreed. And as, as you think about that, that process, I'd like to take on, um, Liam's question here. Um, you know, are we locking in waste at the very beginning as well? Um, I would, I would say that there are lots of VRP implementations that lock in waste. Um, every opportunity they have. <laughs> um, what you, what you want to do from a planning perspective, this is where the planning component comes in, is understand that you're creating a plan that is going to change. Um, you know, the, your, your project plan is going to be iterative and it's going to grow. So as you start to plan before you go, you kick off your project, think about those areas of waste that you're trying to reduce intentionally so that you don't lock them into your upfront cost. And then manage the uh, once you have that plan in place for managing waste up front. Go through that project, uh, the project management program, thinking of ways to continue to remove waste. It's um, one of the the key things that's always interesting is um, ERP implementation costs. Uh, that estimate never goes down because um, <laughs> uh, that that money is from a vendor perspective. That money is already counted. Um, they're already counting on that money and now they're looking to increase that. But from a perspective of a client side of things, you're hoping that that's the top end and that you come in somewhere underneath. 
And there are ways of doing that from, uh, from a planning perspective and a management perspective. On the planning side, you can work in um, uh, uh, into most contracts um, incentives to finish uh, um, early and under budget um, with an overperformance. Naturally, you don't want to, <laughs> you know, we, we want to reward overperformance uh, contractually where we share the gains, right? Um, if you finish a month early and a hundred thousand dollars under budget, um, we'll split that hundred thousand dollars with you and give you fifty of it just for coming in early and under budget. And um, those types of conversations can be written into contracts, and you can start thinking about how you eliminate waste by incentivizing the elimination of waste. Um, the other part of it is being deliberate and how you make decisions. Um, there, there are many, many, many times in an implementation where you had to ask the question, are we going to change the software or are we going to change our business processes? Um, for the most part, you should consider every time you ask yourself, are we going to consider software changing the software as waste um, and, and consider changing your business processes as reducing waste? Um, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that when you implement software, you're, uh, you're doing that with the purpose of improving your business processes. So the software is there intended to be a waste reduction tactic. And you want to be able to manage that conversation through the, the, uh, the implementation itself. Yeah, completely agree with that. Um, you know, we're big fans of, of trying to keep things as out of the box as you can and, and, it, and to change those business processes whenever you can. Um, because, you know, a lot of times, organizations just do things the way they've done them because that's the way they were taught. Uh, their predecessor said, this is the way we've done it. This is the way we've always done it. Um, and, and continuing it through a transformation with those types of answers will get you into trouble fast. Um, so taking a look at each process and evaluating, is this the way we should be doing it, um, is a great exercise to make sure that you avoid that waste so that then you have this golden opportunity to optimize your business, your processes, and your technology all at once. And, and part of the leadership conversation of an ERP implementation is that there is accountability and responsibility on all parties involved. And there should be many parties involved. It shouldn't just be you and the system integrator. Um, you should have a, an independent third party involved in making sure that um, everything's happening the way that it's supposed to on all fronts. And there are likely to be many other uh, software vendors involved. Nobody ever replaces their entire system with just one system. Um, you know, a lot of software vendors will like, will would love to have you believe that, but it is simply not true. And so now you're going to have to integrate with some folks, some ways, and and being able to do that is an important part of that program management component. Um, on the whole, that's your responsibility as the uh, as the client to lead your team through that. And as you think about it, um, in, in that way, we're leading us through to the purpose of accomplishing our goals uh, of this digital transformation. Again, it goes back to that, that question from Jerry, where does it start? It starts with the business. Um, and you, you can't not co-op people into, uh, into that with a, with a clean leadership objective. Yeah, and, and, and really, that's a great lens to look at things through is, you know, how is my technology best supporting the business? Um, you, you get some folks in IT who look at it and they say, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to IT, so it must be good for the organization. Um, but if there's no business driver behind why you made these decisions, um, you, you really, it's 
you know, again, going back to that conversation of waste, if you have a very souped up uh, IT environment, but your business doesn't need it or can't be supported by it, it, it was a waste. And that's not the type of transformation you want to go through. Yeah. And as, as you know, the Tammy's question here is well aligned with that in that, you know, that how do we get away from all of these unknowns, um, especially now that we're, we're past the uh, past the discovery phase? How does this uh, how can we be effective with the amount of time wasted planning things um, and move into uh, the, the real meat of the work? Um, as we start thinking about leadership and, and plugging gaps, bringing in the business and being and having them be involved in that is really important and understanding the, um, the, the nature of the independent consultant who's going to come in and tell you um, these are way more unknowns than you should be experiencing right now. Your system mm -hmm. integrator has got you way, way over your skis on this. You need to take a big step backwards and reevaluate. Your system integrator is not going to tell you that. They're going to want you to think that everything is coming up roses the whole way for as long as possible. Um, and it's that's why an independent third party is so important in this, who can help you understand the difference between when things are hard just because you're implementing software, because there are times where it's like, it's just difficult. It, it's always going to be difficult. And there, that's just, this is part of that difficult experience. Knowing the difference between that and something that's going wrong right now and is hard because it's wrong um, is, is really hard to tell the difference, especially when you're in the middle of it and your system integrator is in the middle of it. Because it's hard for you to see the forest for the trees. They don't have an incentive to call it out, call it like it is. And they probably feel like they can fix it anyway and write this ship so they're not going to say anything. Having somebody call it out like that and say, look, this isn't hard because it's supposed to be. This is hard because we're off our off the tracks here. Let's figure out how to do that so that when we move forward and we start getting past those validation stages, we don't look back and, and, and then realize at that point that, oh, that was hard because it because we, we screwed it up royally. Uh, we, we don't want to be in that position at all. Yeah. That's exactly it. And, and having been on a few projects where we've helped clients to find their way back to the path, and that's what brought us in. Um, one of the best ways you as an internal organization can help with this, you know, outside of bringing in a third party um, independent consultant is, is freeing up your people. Um, there's so many times where part of the plan is not to backfill roles and responsibilities. It is, well, on top of your day job, you're going to do an implementation. Um, and that that doesn't go well because it, it makes it so that then folks are trying to juggle too many things. They make easy decisions because they have a lack of time rather than think through what is the right decision and the right course of action. And so opening your folks up to, to do that critical thinking um, is a huge way that you can take steps internally um, on top of working with a, an independent third party. All right. Thank you, Mitch and Adam. Great conversation and uh, good to revisit that clip from a while back from a previous Digital Stratosphere event. And again, if you're interested in joining our Digital Stratosphere event in person, you can do so first week of October in Denver, Colorado. Um, you can go to stratosphere2023.com to learn more about the event and see who some of the speakers are. Uh, spoiler alert, two of the speakers are here in front of you, Kyler and myself, as well as Adam, who, who you uh, saw in the previous clip. He'll be there as well. And we'll have a host of other uh, speakers as well. So go to stratosphere2023.com to learn more about it. 
Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll debrief on some of the threads and interesting thoughts from seeing and hearing that conversation again. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation. When I wake up, we'll be right back. Well, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, your host here on Transformation Ground Control. I want to personally invite you to our upcoming Stratosphere 2023 event. It's a conference that we host every year. It's a tech agnostic conference. Features a number of independent technology agnostic speakers, both from third stage consulting as well as from outside our company. We try to bring in the the industry's brightest minds and the most objective minds to help you learn the things you need to know to make your transformation successful. We cover everything from digital strategy to software evaluation to change management to program management to process improvement, data and architecture migration, all that kind of stuff we're going to cover here in Digital Stratosphere. It's going to be October 4th, 5th, and 6th in Denver, Colorado. I'll be there. Kyler will be there, our co-host here on Transformation Ground Control, as well as others will be there. So be sure to check us out. We'll also have great opportunities for networking, for peer networking, as well as networking with speakers. We're also going to have great entertainment, too. We'll have some happy hour networking events, as well as live music from that 80s band, which is uh, my favorite cover band. They play all 80s stuff. Uh, so come enjoy that as well while you're, while you're at it. It's all happening in Denver, October 4, 5, and 6. Uh, you can go to stratosphere2023.com to learn more about the event. Be sure to register by August 15th to get the early bird discounts, which is uh, fairly significant. Again, stratosphere2023.com. Learn more about it. Hope to see you there. And uh, in the meantime, hope you enjoy the rest of this episode of Transformation Ground Control. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 132. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. And Kyler, we just had the conversation here with Mitch and Adam, the clip of them talking about project management or effective project management within digital transformations. What were some of your thoughts and takeaways from that conversation? Yeah, well, I always love hearing from Mitch and Adam specifically because they are two of the most tactical delivery resources we have on our team. Um, so whenever they do these conversations, these are proven methodologies that have worked for actual clients. Um, they're not, you know, theories or concepts. They're actually proven insights. So if it were me and I was going through that and I had, you know, a digital transformation project in process, I would listen to that on repeat because there's so much information on there of, you know, what you could actually do to be successful. Um and I think the, you know, the biggest piece of that is understanding the importance of that independent and technology agnostic conversation in there, even if you have that internally. Like, of course, you know, we'd always love to help you here at third stage, but having that professional skepticism of understanding everybody else's agenda, but also having those internal competencies of the P PM side. Um, in-house to know the the intensity of organizing around that. And then the last point I'll make, um, and I'm interested to hear your feedback too, Eric, is understanding the resources that it takes internally to go through a digital transformation. When it comes to a project manager, that has to be 100% responsible for that at all times. And that's a lot of the time why our PMO or our project management comes in because of the industry expertise, not only that, um, the partnerships, established industry partnerships, but also the ability to be a partner to that internal resource is is so important. And that's really what Mitch and Adam do. That's their, you know, their team approach. But that understanding that and having that awareness of what is needed 
as far as that resourcing is absolutely critical. Um, that's going to take so much time and really just energy into evolving that core team and keeping the project on track, on budget, and on the business agenda, not the vendor agenda. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's almost uh, like having an extension of your team, you know, and that's really the role we try to fill. And people like Mitch and Adam and other team members from Third Stage, you know, we're not here to be sort of the big, you know, outside consultants that you don't look behind the curtain, we'll just handle it all for you. It's more of a collaboration with our clients to where we are an extension of their team. We bring the expertise and we're on their side. You know, we're on the client side. We're there to represent them and help them manage their project, make it more successful. We're not affiliated intentionally. We're not affiliated with any software technology providers and we have no economic incentive to be as such. So our only, the only people that pay us are the, the clients. I mean, clients are the ones that pay us. We don't make money from the software vendors, which means we can just do what the clients want and need versus what the software vendors want us to do, um, which is how most of the industry works. Most of the industry, you get a consultant and they're somehow affiliated with or in bed with one or more software vendors. So um, that's really key is you want to know you've got an objective, unbiased partner to help you through that process. And that's a role we fill. Yeah. And it's always, it's always interesting to be on a fly on the wall in those calls when one of our consultants do see like a vendor trying to, like we kind of talked about it early in the episode, strong arm you into a choice and they just shut that down in the, in the best and most, you know, professional way possible of just understanding that. And that, you know, that's truly the value of the insurance policy that we bring um, to that. And, and Mitch and Adam do the best of that. And it's always funny because people think that vendors don't like us and it's actually quite the opposite. Um, they do in the fact that we, you know, are a partner with them and create an ability to have project synergy, not conflict. That's our biggest goal is to, you know, go in as a team approach to achieve business goals and maximize the potential of, of technology within the enterprise. Um, so definitely a great conversation. Highly recommend you follow um, both Mitch and Adam thought leadership on LinkedIn. They have some great information on there and um, we have a variety of different um, content pieces. As um, Eric mentioned, we do have our in-person Stratosphere in October 2023. Go to um, stratosphere2023.com to view the agenda. We have a lot of our senior executive vendor partners joining us. So it's a great opportunity to kind of ask them questions and see Eric kind of moderate how we work with our vendor partners. Um, so uh, definitely excited for, for that event. Um, our VIP ticket gives you full access to Eric the entire time, as well as uh, a signing with his new book and some very exciting exclusive happy hour. So definitely um, recommend that type of um, experience as well. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that event too. And uh, hopefully this last clip with Mitch and Adam gave you a, a flavor of what kind of thought leadership you could expect in that, in that conference. And uh, I'll admit, I like, it's a great clip, but I like seeing conversations like that in person. I, I personally enjoy it more. I think you get more yeah. out of it. You, oh yeah. The interaction with peers and everything is, is super valuable. So be sure to check out stratosphere2023.com if you'd like to Join Kyler and I and uh, Adam and uh, Mitch might be there as well, too. We're not sure yet uh, if he'll be there, but um, several other team members from Third Stage as well as others outside of Third Stage will be there as well. So be sure to check that out. So um, great episode uh, today. Thank you for that, Kyler. And thank you to the audience for uh, all the great questions and interactions here today. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, YouTube, and Twitter. 
or X as it's called now, I suppose. It just changed its name. I still can't get used to that, but X, Twitter, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you can find us there, a uh, new episode streaming there every Wednesday. You can also find us on audio podcast platforms, or you can just go to transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can view all the past episodes and see new episodes as they're released on transformationgroundcontrol.com. So uh, thank you for being here today. Hope you have a great week and we'll see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. He used ant. Ooh, try that again. He used anti. We didn't do any of the um, news articles yet. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I guess there's good news, bad news here. Uh- <laughs> I love getting old. You know, like we're in the bird club and the gardening club. Those ninety-year-old ladies—they know everything there is to know about everything. So. Well, that was a total digression. So we went off yeah. track to Sorry, further Kathy. off track. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you understand what we're doing here, Cassie. We're totally out of order, but I'm going to finish it anyway.